U.S. employers added 311,000 jobs in February. That's about 50% more than expected. The numbers will be inspected by the Federal Reserve as it battles inflation, and we'll take a closer look this hour. Today is Friday, March 10th, and you're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, accusations of racial bias persist in the home appraisal industry. Unfortunately, we have not figured out how to undo that harm fully. Well, now companies say modernizing technology and data will help curb discrimination. Leave yourself some extra time to get around by the MBTA in the Boston area. The T is selling, telling subway drivers to slow down in parts of the system out of concerns for safety. Also ahead, a preview of potential firsts and potential oddities at the 95th Academy Awards on Sunday. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden's applauding the latest monthly jobs report, which shows more than 300,000 jobs created last month. It wasn't as robust as the more than half million created the month before, but Biden says the market's still resilient. All told, we've created more than 12,000, 12,000 jobs since they took office, nearly 8,000 of the manufacturing jobs. That means overall we've created more jobs in two years than any administration has created in the first four years. The Fed's expected to weigh the latest jobs numbers when policymakers meet later this month about hiking interest rates again. The Fed's warned it may have to do so more aggressively to counter inflation. Well, Silicon Valley Bank, the 16th largest bank in the United States, has collapsed. It's a culmination of a dramatic 48 hours that witnessed a run on the bank when depositors, mostly tech workers and venture capital-backed companies, began pulling their money out. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation seized control today. Chris Kotowski, Oppenheimer Senior Research Analyst, offered this reaction a short time ago. This is very swift action. It has pluses and minuses to it. You know, one is that it it cures that moral hazard argument, right? We're going to, you know, the the chips are going to fall where they may. You know, on, on the other hand, unfortunately, it's also sending the subtle message, and you can see that in the stock market today, it's sending the subtle message that um, that you should take your money out of smaller banks and put them into bigger banks. The FDIC says depositors will have access to their insured deposits by Monday morning. In Israel, some senior political figures are criticizing the resumption of ties between Iran and Saudi Arabia. NPR's Daniel Estrin has the latest from Tel Aviv. Israel sees Saudi Arabia as an important potential ally, but sees Iran as an existential threat because of Iran's nuclear advancement and its leaders' frequent calls to destroy Israel. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had no immediate comment on the Iran-Saudi deal. But former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett called it dangerous for Israel. He said it was a failure of Netanyahu's government to build a regional alliance against Iran. The head of Israel's Parliamentary Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee, Yuli Edelstein, said the Iran-Saudi deal was very bad for Israel and the whole free world. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The Manhattan District Attorney is asking former President Donald Trump to testify before a grand jury next week. This, according to a person familiar with the probe. If Trump declines the invitation, the Republican may become the first former president to be criminally indicted. The DA has been investigating hush money payments during Trump's 2016 campaign. Trump's running for office again. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is down 345 points, more than 1% at the close. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. More now on the collapse of the 16th largest financial institution in the country. Silicon Valley Bank has branches in Newton, Boston, Beverly, Cambridge, and Wellesley. Today, regulators closed it, and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation has taken control of the bank's assets. The FDIC says customers will have access to insured deposits by Monday. Interim MBTA General Manager Jeff Gonneville has lifted the speed restrictions earlier today on some parts of the red, blue, and orange lines. Trolleys on the entire stretch of the Green Line and Mattapan Line still have to operate at just 10 to 25 miles per hour. Gonneville says he ordered trains on all subway lines to slow down last night. That was after he learned that staff documents were incomplete regarding recent safety tests. Essentially, they identify an issue with our track that we, we need or should address. In these particular instances, depending on what the defect is, they will, we will slow trains down in order to mitigate any potential risk. The T says it could take several days to conduct new inspections to ensure the safety of all tracks, so there is no estimate for when all the speed restrictions can be lifted. It's been three years since Massachusetts declared a state of emergency for COVID, and today we learned the number of people working in the state is essentially back to where it was before the pandemic. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reports Massachusetts employers added just under 20,000 jobs in January. Those gains brought the statewide employment close to just 200 short of the total total recorded in February of 2020. That was the last month before deep job losses were brought on by the pandemic. As we get ready to spring forward one hour this weekend, Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey is continuing his quest in Congress to keep daylight saving time year-round. He says that will provide all kinds of benefits. It actually reduces childhood obesity. It increases physical fitness. It boosts economic activity. It reduces crime. Criminals don't like to work in daylight, and it reduces energy. Markey's Sunshine Protection Act passed the Senate but died in the House last session. So a reminder, Sunday morning at 2 a.m., clocks will jump ahead an hour. Right now, 49 degrees, a beautiful day today. Should get a crush of clouds in tonight. The off chance of a shower falling to about 35. Tomorrow, clouds should spend the day. Some light snow and rain only reaching about 36 degrees. Sunshine should push back the clouds for Sunday. Mainly sunny skies, about 43 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere, designed to assist those working from home. More at remotepc.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. When the head of Norfolk Southern testified before Congress yesterday, his message amounted to, we're sorry for the disaster in East Palestine, Ohio, and we'll fix it. Norfolk Southern runs a safe railroad. And it's my commitment to improve that safety and make our safety culture the best in the industry. That was Alan Shaw, chief executive of the train company responsible for the derailment. Senators on the Environment and Public Works Committee weren't having it. Lawmakers from both parties attacked Shaw for refusing to endorse stricter regulations. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg has been leading the Biden administration's push on those regulations, and he joins us again now. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hello, good to be with you. When Norfolk Southern says it will rebuild its safety culture from the ground up and invest more, do you believe that? Well, I appreciate the steps that they have committed to so far. 
But the biggest thing that I have asked them to do is to change course in resisting regulation. Uh, They and the entire freight railroad lobby have fought tooth and nail year after year on stricter standards. And I think the opportunity and the obligation before us right now, uh, speaking not just for us as a department, but but for the country, including Congress, is to push that uh, that standard much higher uh, when it comes to everything from the adoption of reinforced tank cars that are less likely to spill when there's a derailment or a crash, uh, to the way that railroad workers are treated. Uh, these are all things that uh, we, we know there are things that would be affected. And uh, Norfolk Southern and the other freight railroads have resisted them uh, time and time again. So you know, I'm glad to see more compensation going out to the people of East Palestine. They deserve uh, to be taken care of in every possible way. Uh, those are all welcome developments. But what we need is more than that. What we need is for them to get on board with a higher standard of enforceable safety regulations. And we're going to keep pushing for that. You say Norfolk Southern and the entire freight rail lobby has resisted this. How much is, is this a Norfolk Southern problem versus a U.S. freight rail problem? That is, Norfolk Southern happened to have the most high-profile public disaster. Uh, one of their trains just derailed yesterday in Alabama. But could this just as easily have happened to any rail company? Well, we're taking a close look at Norfolk Southern specifically and have launched a supplemental review of their safety practices and safety culture. But the reality is uh, all of the major railroads, what are called the uh, class one freight railroads, uh, have these problems and have a much higher rate of accidents, uh, derailments, crashes, injuries, and other issues than I think most Americans are aware of. And you don't have reason to believe that Norfolk Southern is significantly worse than the others? Well, uh, again, if we find anything additional in our stepped-up review, that will be that will lead to specific actions with regard to Norfolk Southern. Uh, but I would say that across each of the major Class One freight railroads, if you look at violations, if you look at derailments, uh, you're going to see broadly comparable numbers. You said that right now there's a lot of momentum for positive change, but as we know, the country has a short attention span, and the process to implement new rules and regulations is long and winding and often influenced by industry. How do you make sure that this process doesn't get so drawn out that by the time something gets implemented, the rest of the country is no longer paying attention and industry is having the same impact it's had in the past? Well, that's one of the reasons we've been working these kinds of issues before, during, and after their moment in the public spotlight Uh, on uh, railroad safety, for example, uh, stepped up audits and improved regulations on things like uh, a minimum crew size. Uh, Those are things we were working on uh, when we got here as an administration. These added things are things we're going to push on, and we're going to keep pushing, uh, even uh, if the coverage dies down because it's the right thing to do, the same way that we have been. Is there a way to cut through the red tape? I think there can be. Uh, I mean, look, we are subject to a lot of uh, procedural requirements that slow down the process of things like creating a new regulation. But I would add uh, that this is where Congress can come in and uh, and we can get swift action from Congress that wouldn't force us to go through all of those uh, steps that, that, that can take uh, a year or more on the regulatory front. It's why we've urged Congress to take steps like encoding uh, the uh, requirements on uh, uh, on uh, higher hazmat standards, on uh, the safety of these uh, trains and cars, and the bipartisan legislation that has emerged 
in the Senate speaks to a lot of those priorities. It's not often you see that kind of uh, bipartisan push in today's Washington. That's part of what gives me hope that we can, in fact, get swifter action this time around. When you look at the action in Congress, on the one hand, you see lawmakers from both parties saying Norfolk Southern needs to do better. On the other hand, you see both parties trying to score political points from this situation. What do you think the actual likelihood is of Congress passing the kind of bill you're talking about? Well, I would call this a put-up-or-shut-up moment. Uh, I'm certainly frustrated that uh, some voices, mainly in the uh, Republican Party in Congress, who have been outspoken on uh, the derailment generally, have not appeared willing to support the EPA, which is uh, the the main agency empowered to hold Norfolk Southern accountable, and have been hesitant to support the railroad regulations we're calling for. On the other hand, uh, there are Republicans and Democrats joining on this legislation in the Senate. Uh, and again, I, I think that's uh, that's not a small thing. Uh, to me, if, if that continues, along with continued push uh, from our administration, which you can count on, and continued public pressure, uh, I really think that uh, big things are, are possible right now. You've said that you made a mistake by not visiting the site of the crash earlier. Um, the Guardian, a left-leaning newspaper, said your decision to wait three weeks, quote, recalls the incompetence of FEMA during Hurricane Katrina. So what do you think you need to do now to regain trust going forward? Well, let me be very clear. Our department responded to this issue in the first hours uh, after the derailment. Uh, We were there from the beginning. And uh, unlike uh, those other cases that have been cited, uh, nobody has pointed to a deficiency in terms of the uh, readiness of this department, the presence of our staff, and the functional role that we had. Uh, However, I I do think that this was an opportunity uh, to break from precedent a little bit, to break from the norm where you don't normally see transportation secretaries at crash sites, probably out of deference to the NTSB, but we can do both. We can respect the independence uh, of the NTSB, but also break from tradition and have more of an on-the-ground presence because it's an opportunity to signal to communities impacted by these kinds of uh, disasters and and derailments uh, how important they are and that they matter. But uh, again, uh, at every step of the way, uh, our agency has been there doing its job, and our biggest job right now is to make and enforce good transportation policy that saves lives, which is exactly uh, what we're doing and exactly what we're urging Congress to do with us. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, thanks for talking with us. Thanks for having me. The walls are closing in on TikTok. The White House has announced that it supports a bipartisan Senate bill that would give the president the power to ban the Chinese-owned app. But is the super popular video app actually going to be banned? And and how would that even work? Well, to help us understand, we're joined now by NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Elsa. So it seems like TikTok has been dealing with a lot of legal problems in recent months. Can you just bring us up to speed here? Sure. So more than 30 states have acted to restrict TikTok in some way. Many states have banned the app on government-issued devices. Now, these bans honestly have had little effect on the company besides being kind of a hit to TikTok's reputation. Mm -hmm. Now, in Congress, meanwhile, there have been a flurry of bills aimed at TikTok, but the one that seems to be gaining the most momentum is broadly about limiting business with foreign countries considered adversaries like China. Uh, And the bill's sponsors say it would give Biden the power to force TikTok to be sold to an American company or to put TikTok out of business completely. But the federal government banning a whole company seems like a really big deal. Like, has this ever happened before? 
Yes, the federal government has placed entities in China, Russia, and North Korea on blacklists, basically making it impossible to do business with them. But that has never happened also with a huge global social media company like TikTok. Mm -hmm. So from that regard, it's definitely unprecedented. The closest comparison would be of the gay dating app Grindr. At one point, that app was acquired by a Chinese firm, and the federal government looked at it and said, you know what, this kind of looks like a national security threat, so it ought to be sold to an American company, and that's what happened. And now we have the Biden White House trying to make TikTok do the same exact thing. The thing is, though, Bobby, TikTok is, you know, this hugely popular social media app. It's full of people expressing political views, other types of speech. I mean, wouldn't banning a whole platform for speech potentially violate the First Amendment? Many legal scholars think so, and it's something Trump ran up against when he tried to crack down on TikTok. There's a law called the Berman Amendment that court cited when Trump's ban attempts were struck down, and it's this old Cold War-era law that says films, music, books, and other information, and now digital media, must be able to flow freely between the U.S. and hostile countries. And legal experts say passing a TikTok ban would likely, once again, run up against these same legal hurdles, these yeah. free speech issues. Okay, so so let's say there is a ban, and, and we're sure to see some legal challenges to it, but let's talk for a minute about just how such a ban would even work. Like, if TikTok is banned tomorrow, say, what will happen to the app that's already on millions of people's phones here in the U.S.? Yeah, it's not going to disappear overnight. There's no way of removing an app from someone's phone, obviously. But if TikTok were banned, it could become illegal to do business with the company. And so that would apply to Apple and Google. You know, you have the Apple Store, you have the Google Play Store. That's where TikTok and all apps send software updates. And if they're not able to do that, over time, TikTok would become slow. It would become buggy. Mm -hmm. Eventually, it'd become unusable. So basically, it would die a slow death. It wouldn't be instant. And how close are we now to that actually happening? you think so it's bad as it's ever been for TikTok, but there's a few things to consider. First, the CEO of TikTok is testifying before Congress later this month. Secondly, TikTok has spent $1.5 billion mm. to safeguard Americans' data. We have to see if that goes as far as the White House would like. I will note that uh, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo said recently that banning TikTok could mean losing every voter under 35. And it's notable that the Commerce Department is leading okay. the national security discussions with TikTok. That is NPR's Bobby Allen. Thank you, Bobby. And this is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, regional rivals Saudi Arabia and Iran have restored ties with China's help. Why it matters, coming up. On Wall Street, losses across the board for stocks. We'll have the numbers in just a bit. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Economics at Boston College, providing an industry-aligned curriculum on campus, online, or hybrid. bc.edu slash msae. The Dow fell more than 1 percent, 345 points today, the Dow's worst week since June. S&P dropped about 1.5 percent, and the Nasdaq gave up 1 and 3 quarters percent. Springfield-based gunmaker Smith & Wesson is reporting weaker earnings. The company says its profits fell last quarter by 60 percent compared to the year before. Sales of its guns also dropped 27 percent from the year before. Smith & Wesson says it's also had to increase its borrowing as it prepares to move its headquarters to Tennessee. Business news comes up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 4.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. 
Tickets at MOS.org. And UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Lots of clouds moving in tonight. Slight chance of rain or snow overnight. Chance of some snow early tomorrow, then shifting over to rain by midday. Little or no accumulation expected. Highs tomorrow just about 39 degrees. And then for Sunday, different. Mostly sunny. Highs about 43. 49 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed a hiring platform for helping businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates to fill job openings, all from their employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The U.S. job market is still hot, but not quite as scalding as it was a month ago. Employers added 311,000 jobs in February, according to the latest numbers out from the Labor Department this morning. That's a big number, but well below the half million jobs added the month before. The Federal Reserve is keeping a close eye on the job market as officials weigh how aggressive they need to be fighting inflation. On top of that, the Fed faces another decision about raising interest rates in less than two weeks. NPR's Scott Horsley is covering this. And uh, Scott, job growth slowed somewhat in February, but it's still pretty strong. So where are these new jobs coming from? Most of the new jobs are in the services sector, especially the kind of thing you do face-to-face with other people, whether that's going out to eat or getting on an airplane. Uh, Bars and restaurants added 70,000 jobs last month. Hotels added another 14,000. Vinay Patel owns a dozen hotels. He's starting to see more of his rooms filling up, even in the middle of the week. I think people are slowly getting back in the groove of things. I think the leisure component had already been back. And then now we're slowly seeing this year some of the corporate travel come back as well. And so obviously that requires us to hire more people. Would be housekeeping, front desk, pretty much all across the board. Now, there are some weaker spots in this jobs uh, uh, jobs report. Trucking companies cut more than 8,000 jobs last month. Factories cut about 4,000. Uh, that suggests we're not buying as much stuff as we used to. But construction jobs have held up surprisingly well. The economy added 24,000 construction jobs last month, even though rising mortgage rates have really put the brakes on the housing market. Despite the creation of new jobs, the unemployment rate also inched up in February. What should we make of that? Probably not too much. Remember, January's jobless rate was the lowest in more than half a century, just 3.4%. Unemployment did tick up a little bit last month to 3.6%, but that's mostly because there were a lot more people out looking for work. More than 400,000 people joined or rejoined the workforce last month. The share of adults who are in the labor force is now the highest it's been since the start of the pandemic. President Biden thinks that's an encouraging sign that people are feeling good about their job prospects. People who are staying out of the job market, this is particularly good news, are now getting back into the job market. They're coming off the sidelines. They're getting back into the job market. 
Of course, some people may be joining the workforce not because they're excited about going to work, but because they've got bills to pay and because the cost of rent and groceries keeps going up. Yeah, and the Fed's trying to get those costs under control by raising interest rates. How's that going? Inflation has come down, but not as quickly as the Fed would like. Uh, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell warned this week that the central bank might have to raise interest rates higher and more quickly in order to get prices under control. Among other things, the Fed has been worried that an overheated job market might put more upward pressure on inflation, and those fears were stoked by that very hot jobs report a month ago. As you've noted, today's report was a little bit cooler. Uh, Not only was the headline jobs number lower, but you do have more people coming into the workforce, which could help take some pressure off. And wage growth has slowed to the point where it's not as much of a concern. Right now, the betting markets think the Federal Reserve will likely go with a smaller quarter percentage point interest rate hike at its next meeting in just under two weeks, rather than a more aggressive half point uh, rate increase. But there's still one more key piece of information to come before that Fed meeting, and that's the February inflation rate due out next week. NPR's Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome. A black couple in California has settled a discrimination case over their home's value. They were shocked in 2020 when a white appraiser put it at just under a million dollars. Tanisha Tate-Austin recently told a federal panel how they scheduled another appraisal, this time with a white friend posing as the owner. Our friend Jan brought over a family photo. We took down our family photos and replaced artwork so there was no trace of us in our own home. A term often referred to as whitewashing. That second assessment, nearly half a million dollars higher. Now, this is an extreme example, but research finds that homes in Black and Latino areas are more likely to be undervalued. And that is fooling a push, is fueling a push to revamp the appraisal process to limit racial bias. NPR's Jennifer Ludden explains. You may think pinning down the square footage of your home is pretty straightforward for the pros, but not really, says John Liss, who started selling homes in high school. I was taking customers from apartment A to apartment B, and then the offer sheet would say they're both 2,000 square feet, and you'd be shaking your head, leaving, and saying there's no way these things are the same size. When it comes to an appraisal, there can be a lot of variation in assessing a home's condition or the value of, say, marble countertops. And if an appraisal comes in low, it can mean a big loss for people who need a bank loan. Liz became obsessed with getting more precise, objective data. Two years ago, he created a company called True Footage that he runs out of his home in Austin. So I'm going to show you kind of two pictures. He shares his Zoom screen to explain software he's developed. The goal is to pick the most appropriate recent sales or comps that show how much nearby homes are worth. Fair housing groups say this is a key element where bias about a certain neighborhood can show up. Liz's program analyzes the number of homes for sale. How many days on market? Did sellers pick up closing costs? Hey, here's how fast or here's how slow the market's moving at this given moment. And here's what you should do for your time adjustments. That means adjusting older sale prices to match the current market. Liz says it's not perfect. In black neighborhoods, even if you pick the right comps, Home prices are still lower even today because of the legacy of redlining when banks refused loans to families of color. He's experimenting with artificial intelligence to try and counter that. Now, back to that square footage problem and how it is surprisingly difficult to calculate. Some companies are also changing how they measure it. So we just slip the phone in where the camera is. 
Tim Staudenmeyer is with Class Valuation, a large appraisal company based in Michigan. He uses his own home to demonstrate 3D scanning. He places an iPhone with laser imaging in a little gadget on top of a tripod. I'm doing the interior. I'm going to select the living room. The gadget spins in a circle while the phone snaps 180 photos. It's the same technology that creates those virtual tours you see on listings. Scott Rose, Class Valuation's Chief Innovation Officer, says it also produces data that is precise, transparent, and consistent. You can send five different people out to the property with very little training at all, and you're going to get the same five results from each of those visits. Did you catch that? Little training needed. So a technician can measure homes that is more efficient. And there's another benefit when the appraiser doesn't have to go out and meet the homeowner. Why not just remove the appraiser completely from that interaction, avoiding for any potential bias that may come through? John Liss also prefers his appraisers not make home visits. Trainees take the photos and blur any that might reveal the homeowner's race. Lenders don't always allow this kind of appraisal, but the mortgage giants Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have been testing them, and many expect approval. All this change may not end discrimination, but the hope is that it's more fair and builds trust in what home appraisers do. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about five minutes, the slew of storms that have pummeled California this winter caused hundreds of rock slides. Now geologists are assessing new risks and reinforcing protections. A reminder for drivers this weekend, the Sumner Tunnel between East Boston and downtown will close again for renovations this weekend. It shuts down tonight at 11, reopens Monday morning at 5 o'clock. The restoration project continues into next year. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. Pop star Callie Uchis wanted to write about love in all its different dimensions. You know, the times where you're at peace, the times where you're in pieces. That's a wonderful phrase, the times you're at peace, the times you're in pieces. I don't know, just came up with it off the top. <laughs> the singer-songwriter on her new album, Red Moon in Venus. And all the news Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Republican House members in the far-right Freedom Caucus have issued their response to President Biden's budget release yesterday that calls for new funding for social programs and defense while raising taxes on the wealthy. Republican Bob Good says his party wants to bring back, quote, fiscal sanity to Washington. You're going to see us make history again in this new Congress where we're going to actually cut spending in a meaningful way and put us on a path to fiscal stability as a nation. 
House Republicans yesterday told Biden his budget was dead in the water. But regardless of the party in power, presidential budgets are always more of a wish list and a nod toward a president's agenda, and they rarely pass Congress. In California, more than 9,000 homes are under evacuation orders after a new atmospheric river with heavy rains and strong winds hit on parts of the state. NPR's Nathan Rott reports flooding is possible on a number of the state's major waterways. The Bureau of Reclamation and California water officials have been strategically lowering reservoirs to try to accommodate the anticipated surge in runoff from the ongoing storm system. Forecasters say the storm should peak today, but rain and snow are expected to continue through Saturday, just in time for another atmospheric river to hit early next week. The storms are just the latest in what's been an unusually wet and damaging winter in California. State emergency crews are warning people who have experienced flooding earlier this year, particularly in northern and central California, to be ready for more as this storm continues. Nathan Rott, NPR News. Wall Street much lower by the closing bell. The Dow down 345 points. That's down 1%. That's the worst week of the Dow since last June amid the Silicon Valley bank collapse. The Nasdaq down 199 points and the S&P 500 down 56. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. For T commuters, if it feels like the MBTA line is moving a little slower today, that's because it is. The T reduced the speed of all its subway lines last night. That's after it found some inconsistencies in its staff reports about track inspections and defects. Some speed restrictions remain in place. WBR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports crews are now working to verify all tracks are defect-free. The T's interim general manager, Jeff Gonneville, says inspections have allowed the T to lift the system-wide slowdown order. We now have in place block speed restrictions on red, blue, and orange lines in areas that have not been inspected or where track conditions do not permit normal speeds. Work is continuing on the green and Mattapan lines as well. That means the green and Mattapan lines must operate at speeds of 10 to 25 miles per hour. T-rider Joana Aristizabal says she's noticed the green line running slower and taking the blue line has been total chaos over the last day and a half. The T is asking for riders to be patient. Inspections are expected to last several days. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. UMass Dartmouth will investigate claims the school covered up allegations of sexual assault and harassment. Former campus police officer David Loudon resigned in 2010 after a student made allegations against him. He went on then to work for Blackstone Police for a time. This month, the town of Blackstone reported it found no evidence UMass Dartmouth launched a criminal investigation. It also found the school agreed to give the officer a neutral recommendation to other employers. The university said this week it has hired former Boston Police Commissioner Ed Davis to investigate how the school handled the case and issue a public report. Officer Loudon has not responded to WBR's request for comment. Governor Maura Healey will create a director of rural affairs. Whoever lands the new position will advocate for the state's rural communities and oversee their economic development. The role will also connect to rural communities with grant opportunities and state agencies. And voters in Burlington, Vermont, have approved a measure that would allow some people who are not U.S. citizens to vote in local elections. This week's vote made Burlington the third community in that state to allow voting rights for non-citizens who are in the U.S. legally. That includes green card holders and residents with work permits. They'll be able to vote in positions such as mayor and city council. The state legislature and Vermont's governor still need to sign off. This is WBUR. It's 435. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu slash graduate. It's a pretty nice day today. We should get lots of clouds moving in overnight tonight, though. There is the chance of a shower. Down around 35 degrees tonight. Then for tomorrow, gray once again. And look for temperatures right about 36 degrees. Some light snow and rain off and on during the day. Shouldn't accumulate, should not accumulate to anything. And then the sunshine should push back the clouds on Sunday. Mainly sunny. Highs about 43 degrees. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California, where yet another atmospheric river is dumping heavy rain and snow on the state. In the southern Sierra Nevada, local officials have issued evacuation orders for people living near the swollen Kern River. Water levels are exceptionally high, severe flooding. Ali Soper is chief communications officer for Kern County. A lot of these communities are rural, so likely these people have horrible horses and in other large animals that we need to ensure are brought to safety. Outside coastal Santa Cruz, heavy rain is turning creeks into torrents. One local road collapsed overnight. Ashley Keene of the Santa Cruz County Sheriff's Office says 700 people are stranded behind the washout. Emergency access is cut off for the time being, but county crews are out there as we speak, uh, working on a solution to get them emergency supplies and Uh, water, and anything else that's needed. Heavy rains earlier this winter have already caused more than 700 landslides around the state. Geologists and engineers have been assessing that damage, and repair crews are working almost nonstop. Amy Mayer reports from California's Highway 1, the iconic Pacific Coast Highway. On a windy day, California Department of Transportation engineer Chris Risden is standing on a stretch of Highway 1 at Pescadero Beach, about 35 miles south of San Francisco. It's been around a long, long time, and it's been tricky. Highway 1 runs from Oregon to Mexico, clinging to cliffs and overlooking the ocean. This was the first location that I was ever sent to to look at when I started here 22 and a half years ago. He points to a brand new guardrail that went in after January rains loosened a landslide and cracked the road. It's just one of many Caltrans mitigations. It's a very difficult sort of problem there. We could just see a little rock just fell down. I don't know if you've noticed that. A little rock has fallen down the slope right now. When Risden identifies problems, he designs fixes to keep the road safe. To keep up with constantly moving landslides, research geologist Jonathan Warwick creates 3D maps from aerial images. He's with the U.S. Geological Survey. He's walking on an abandoned road above Highway 1 in Big Sur. He carefully steps down into a jumble of broken asphalt and loose gravel. Welcome to Paul's slide. To the right, the shimmering Pacific. To the left, an active landslide. Below, bulldozers are creating a terrace to catch falling rocks, keeping them off the highway. Just to the south, he points to a roof that Caltrans built, 
turning a section of highway into a tunnel. So that's a place where rocks continually rain down off that slope. Um, and you can see on the roof, right, all the rocks that are sitting on top of that roof. Instead of landing on the road or passing cars. Caltrans sometimes installs metal mesh right against the rock face to keep it from crumbling onto the road. Warwick's maps show how landslides are moving, but they can't predict when one will cause a problem. A steady soaking plus wildfires up the chances that trees and rocks will wash away. Warwick stops at another slide a few miles north that burned in 2020. That winter, rains flushed debris into a creek. And it clogged the culvert running underneath the road and eventually eroded through the road. So uh, we saw a complete failure of the highway here. Crews rebuilt the road with a bigger culvert, but in some places, Caltrans opts for a more dramatic solution. I'm currently on a trail that once was a section of Highway 1. In 1982 and 96 and 2006, Caltrans reinforced the ground and rebuilt the road. The community pushed for a more permanent change. Now, the highway runs through a tunnel just inland from here, and this area is a park with beautiful ocean views. This is like the best place. There's, I mean, so many things. That's local resident Gwendolyn Holden, who's here with her dog. It's easy for me to get to. It's easy for the dog. And then there's so much wildlife viewing. She's seen lots of whales and was hoping to catch the resident falcons today. Holden says the old, windy cliffside road felt harrowing at times. After a heavy rain, she still worries about rocks falling here. The big one right there that um, does give me pause. Which is not Caltrans' goal. So crews continue to clean up rock slides in a constant struggle against winter storms. For NPR News, I'm Amy Mayer along California's Pacific Coast Highway. Today, there is news of warming relations between two big adversaries in the Mideast, Iran and Saudi Arabia. The two oil giants have been on opposing sides in wars from Syria to Yemen. Saudi Arabia even says Iran was behind a stunning attack on its oil facilities back in 2019. But the possible break in these tensions comes from an unexpected place, China which helped broker a deal between these countries. NPR's Aya Petrawi covers the Gulf and joins us now from London. Hi, Aya. Hi, Elsa. So what exactly does this deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia include? This deal essentially says that these two regional rivals are going to resume full diplomatic ties, which means they're going to open their embassies again in one another's countries. And this is huge because seven years ago, they had ruptured ties and Saudi Arabia's embassy in Tehran was ransacked by Iranian protesters who were angry at a mass execution in Saudi Arabia that included the killing of a prominent Saudi Shia cleric. So what this agreement does is it says the foreign ministers are going to directly talk to one another. They're going to revive security agreements and trade and investment agreements. And all of this is supposed to happen within two months. Wow, that's really fast. Well, what effect could this have on stability or security in the, re- in the region? I mean, this could reverberate widely, especially in places like Syria and Yemen. And the reason is because in Syria, Saudi Arabia and Iran have been backing opposing sides of that conflict. But that conflict now is almost in a stalemate in most of, of parts of Syria. So we could see tensions there, you know, going down. But also in Yemen, where Saudi Arabia has been involved in a war there against Iranian-backed Houthi militia groups, this could also help wind down that conflict, which Saudi Arabia desperately wants to get out of. So it could lead to a permanent ceasefire there. But it could also impact countries like Lebanon and Iraq, where there are Iranian-backed militias. Think about Hezbollah and Iran, for example. That activity could go down as well. So this could really have a positive impact on many countries. Well, I understand that this whole deal was announced during the annual leadership meeting in China. 
What do you think that says about the way China perceives its role in the Middle East? There's no doubt, Elsa, that China is an ambitious global power, and this is a diplomatic win for Beijing. China's neutrality in the region, and it is a major buyer of oil from Iran and Saudi Arabia, has allowed them to play this role to their advantage. Um, They have a policy of non-interference in the Middle East, which basically means you're not going to see Beijing criticizing neither Iranians nor Gulf Arab leaders for things like human rights and the human rights records in their countries. Um, So China is really using that hands-off approach to assert its influence. And this is the first time we've seen China broker a deal like this in the Middle East. Well, Is China brokering a deal something that's going to change the U.S.'s role in the region? Because usually it seems like it's the U.S. that tries to make these Mideast agreements happen, right? I mean, the U.S. says anything that de-escalates tensions is in America's interests. I mean, that's their response to this uh, announcement from China. Mm -hmm. But there's no doubt that this reflects real concerns among Gulf Arab states, that the U.S. is focused now on other parts of the world like Ukraine or China and is not the security partner that it once was in the Gulf. But despite these tensions, the U.S. is still the top security partner for Gulf Arab states, and it is an unmatched superpower in the world at the moment. Um, And Saudi Arabia still relies heavily on the U.S. for its weapons and air defenses. But this definitely puts the U.S. on notice that China's ambitions are growing. That is NPR's Aya Batrawi. Thank you so much, Aya. Thank you. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Only humans use stone tools. That's what scientists used to think anyway. Now it's clear that other animals do this too. And it turns out when some monkeys crack open nuts by bashing them with stones, they accidentally create something that looks a lot like stone knives made by early humans. As NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce reports, that raises all kinds of questions. The monkeys are long-tailed macaques that live in Thailand. Tomos Prophet studies them. He says these monkeys typically use a large stone embedded in the ground as a kind of anvil to help them crack open nuts from oil palm trees. They're a little bit bigger than peanuts, um, and they can be quite hard. So they put the oil palm nut on the anvil and use a hammer stone you know, in one or both hands. The monkeys whack the hard nuts over and over again. This is captured on videos. Prophet is an archaeologist at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology. We noticed that at the sites that they were cracking these nuts, there was a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the tools, a lot of the hammerstones, the anvils, but as well as that, there was a lot of broken pieces. Broken pieces of rock from when the monkeys would miss the nut and just hit the anvil with the hammer. And the thing is... These broken pieces of rock look a lot like the stone tools found in archaeological sites associated with early humans who used sharp flakes of rock as knives. So it was actually really kind of uh, somewhat disturbing to me to, to walk into the forest um, and to just see, you know, sort of hundreds of artifacts sitting on the ground um, and to know that there, there are no humans doing this. David Braun is with George Washington University. He says the monkeys just ignore the sharp flakes. They don't cut anything. But if archaeologists like him came across this kind of stuff at a human site that dates back over a million years? We would have diagnosed this as, oh, they're making flakes to cut up things. But they're not. 
To see just how similar and different the monkey artifacts are from human ones, he and his colleagues compared them with collections of stone tools, or assemblages, from ancient human ancestral sites in Tanzania, Kenya, and Ethiopia. The results are in the journal Science Advances. Braun says, there's a lot of overlap and similarities, but even though he says you could throw a bunch of monkey stones into a human archaeological site and no one would notice, are the assemblages we see in, in the fossil record made by monkeys? Probably not. He says there are ways to know if a stone tool was made deliberately, like the presence of animal bones with cut marks or extra modifications to the stones. But he thinks it's important to realize that at least some of what's at these human sites could have been produced accidentally. Jessica Thompson is a paleoanthropologist with Yale University who wasn't on the research team. A lot of these kind of very deep conceptions about what it is to be human is wrapped up in intentional stone tool making, not just stone tool use, but making, making something that's new. She says this study could add to the debate over the nature of one archaeological site in Kenya. It dates back to 3.3 million years ago, and it has what look like very primitive stone tools that would be the oldest ever found. Nell Greenfield Boyce, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, could Donald Trump be closer to indictment? That story in about 15 minutes. First, Bob Mondello's Oscar preview. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Habib & Associates Architects, serving the greater Boston area with comprehensive architectural services. Proud to support WBUR. Habib, A-R-C-H a longtime New England Patriot is retiring. Today's safety Devin McCourty said he's hanging up his cleats after 13 seasons in the NFL, all of them with the Pats. The three-time Super Bowl champion is not announcing his post-Pats plans. It had to happen. The Red Sox lost for the first time in spring training this afternoon. They were shut out to zip by the Blue Jays. Boston managed just five hits on the day. And March Madness has arrived, and some local teams have a chance to earn a ticket to the NCAA college basketball tournament. Tomorrow, UMass Lowell's men's team will take on Vermont for the America East Conference title. On Sunday, Boston University's women's team plays Holy Cross in the Patriot League final. The winner of each game will move on to the national tournament. This is WBUR. It's 449. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. Nadegin Farsad filling in for Peter Sagal. Last week on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we asked Nobel Peace Prize winner Malala which she would choose, Taylor Swift tickets or Beyonce tickets. I would want both tickets. I have a Nobel Peace Prize and I get <laughs> Yeah, incredible answer. We'll hear your demands on this week's news quiz from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A revered former leader of the Navajo Nation has died. 
Peterson Zah served as the tribe's first president in the early 1990s. He led his people through a time of political turmoil while advocating for indigenous rights nationally. Member station KNAU's Ryan Heinches has this remembrance. Zah once described himself as an ordinary man with extraordinary experiences. He was from a rural part of the vast Navajo Nation, but rose to the tribe's chairmanship in the 1980s. Navajo Nation Council Speaker Crystalline Curley says Zah was a stabilizing force during a pivotal time. He is a founding father of our three-branch system here in the government and, you know, making sure that we're stable within that way for approximately 30 years now that we're still practicing that same government structure to this day. As leader, Zah advocated for indigenous interests at the federal level, fighting to include tribal nations in environmental laws and spearheading an effort to clean up abandoned uranium mines. Zah was also a strong voice for education funding and fiscal responsibility. Curley says his low-key but stern style gained him trust throughout the 27,000-square-mile reservation. Many years from now, since the 80s and 90s, that vision of growing as a stronger tribe still stands today because of his vision. Curly knew Zah much of her life, even referring to him as her grandfather, though the two weren't related. Earlier this year, she became the first-ever woman speaker of the Navajo Council and says the elder leader offered constant encouragement throughout her life, but especially when she began her political career. It's a great loss that we're facing today, but he was just a very wonderful man that always thought about home. He never forgot me. He always had that love for his people, no matter where he went. Zah was born in 1937 in Low Mountain near the Hopi Reservation, an area at the center of a long-running and at times bitter land dispute between the tribes. But as a leader, he was able to help bridge that divide through an unlikely friendship with then-Hopi chairman Ivan Sidney. There's a reason for things to happen the way it does. We can support the political strategies, positions of our tribes, but being friends, it was learning and respect individually who we were. Sydney's bond with Zah was forged while the two attended boarding school together in Phoenix. As fate would have it, their terms as tribal leaders overlapped. Sydney says their close and cordial relationship raised eyebrows at the time, but ultimately brought the neighboring tribes closer. He hopes their partnership can inspire younger tribal leaders. I was honored to get to know this gentleman and very honest person. Current Navajo Nation President Boo Nigren called Zah, an iconic leader, and ordered flags fly at half-staff on the reservation for a week in his honor. He was 85. For NPR News, I'm Ryan Heinches in Flagstaff. Oscar fans, the clock is ticking. If you have not already seen Best Picture nominees like Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. The universe is so much bigger than you realize. Or The Fablemans about Steven Spielberg's early life. You stop making movies, it'll break your mother's heart. I don't know what to do anymore. You do what your heart says you have to. Or the social satire triangle of sadness. A Russian capitalist and an American <laughs> communist. On a $250 million luxury yacht. Or any of the other seven best picture contenders. Well, you have 48 hours to binge watch the ones you have missed. Happily, Hollywood is making that quite easy because all the major nominees are already streaming. Critic Bob Mondello is here to talk about what we're likely to see on Sunday's Oscar telecast. Hey, Bob. Hey, Elsa. Hey, so, I mean, last year had loads of firsts, right? Like from the first deaf best actor, Troy Kotzer, to the first openly queer woman of color to win an acting Oscar, Ariana DeBose. But what about this year? Are you 
expecting any firsts. Well, there have already been a couple of firsts. I mean, there are more Asian performers, four, uh, nominated than in any year in Oscar history. <laughs> uh, I, I agree. <laughs> Three of them from Everything Everywhere All at Once. And then Angela Bassett is the first actor ever nominated from a Marvel movie, and that's after two decades and 31 films wow. for Wakanda Forever. So uh, this is going to be a, a history-setting one no matter what. Okay, so already quite exciting, but I also understand that there's a controversy this year, right? Like a surprise Best Actress nomination for Andrea Riseborough in To Leslie, which is this movie that almost no one had ever heard of. Can you just catch us up on what this controversy was? Uh, sure. The um, the film is about an alcoholic West Texas lottery winner who blows through her winnings very quickly. What do you plan to do with 190,000 smackaroos? I don't know. Maybe buy a house, buy something nice for my boy, you know, just have a better life. And she is absolutely terrific, as is the film, even if it's only made about $31,000 at the box office. It was released in a very small way. But its filmmakers have famous friends, including Jennifer Aniston and Kate Blanchett, and they promoted Riseboro to their friends. Mm -hmm. And in weighted voting, it doesn't take a whole lot of votes to put someone into the top five. So she ended up with a nomination. Now, you can see this in several ways. One is that a grassroots campaign beat the studio publicity machines, which is yay indies, right? Yeah. But another is that having well-connected friends is the sort of privilege that doesn't extend to everybody. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in particular, to two black actresses who also did terrific work this year and were considered shoe-ins for the nominations but didn't get them. Danielle Detweiler in Till and Viola Davis in The Woman King. The Academy did an investigation and decided that its rules had been bent, not broken, so they didn't change the lineup. But there is awkwardness. Yeah, total awkwardness. Can you go back to Till and The Woman King? Like, what do you see in those performances that seem Oscar-worthy to you? Oh, Danielle Deadweiler is giving what I think you'd call the classic Oscar performance. It's a complicated portrait of a real person, Emmett Till's mother, uh, in wrenching circumstances. She's terrific in the part. And Viola Davis is just way outside what I think of as her comfort zone, playing a fierce African warrior. I mean, she does physical roles all the time, but this is right after her nomination as a blues singer in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and her win as a homemaker in Fences. So it's a big mm. swing. How about any other overlooked performances or overlooked movies? Nope. By which I mean Jordan Peele's sci-fi flick. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> completely shut out. Well, you were talking earlier about indie films and how they struggle to cut through, but they've actually been doing better at the Oscars lately than studio movies, right? Like the last three Best Picture winners were Coda, Nomadland, and Parasite. Of course, they were collectively seen by very few people. And, <laughs> and yeah. I'm wondering, is that kind of a problem for the Academy? For viewership. Yes, it's a problem because the art of those movies has been fantastic, but the interest level in them has been not so much, right? And the theory is that when popular films get nominated, more people watch the Oscars. For instance, when the first Avatar was competing in 2010, viewership climbed to about 50 million people, even though it lost to The Hurt Locker. Last year, with no blockbusters nominated because there weren't any blockbusters, it was down to less than a third of that. So if you're in the Academy, you think it's great that Avatar and Top Gun and Elvis and everything everywhere all at once are in the running because together those four films have taken in almost $4 billion worldwide, which wow. suggests that people will have a rooting interest in picture. That is NPR's Bob Mondello. Thank you so much, Bob. It is always a pleasure.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks, NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vicks.com. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Don Quixote, returning for the first time in more than 10 years, on stage March 16th to 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Former President Donald Trump has been invited to testify before a grand jury next week. That signals that Trump, who is running for president, could soon face criminal charges. We'll have a look at the strength against the case of the former president coming up on this Friday, March 10th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Also ahead, an outrage grows after Mexico's president denies that drug cartels in this country are feeding the fentanyl crisis in the U.S. It's been a little more than a month since a train derailment caused a massive hazardous spill in East Palestine, Ohio. There are big questions about how the spill might affect the health of firefighters first to the scene. Yes, they may not be sick right now, but 10, 15, 20 years later, are they going to have cancer? Are they going to have COPD? Are they going to have asthma? These stories, Wall Street numbers, and the forecast are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A move by federal regulators to take control of Silicon Valley Bank is rattling investors at week's end. The SVB crisis began this week amid concerns the bank had become overextended, causing what amounted to a run on deposits. Regulators say it's the largest failure of a U.S. financial institution since the collapse of Washington Mutual during the height of the financial crisis more than a decade ago. SVP, the nation's 16th biggest bank, was heavily exposed to the tech sector, which has been battered by the Fed's move to raise interest rates. Members of the House Freedom Caucus are laying out a steep set of demands for negotiations to resolve the debt ceiling crisis. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the group of conservative hardliners is pledging to block President Biden's newly released budget proposal. Freedom Caucus Chairman Scott Perry blames the current debt crisis on what he calls out-of-control spending by Democrats. America will not default on our debts unless President Biden chooses to do so. To ensure America does not default on our debts, the House Freedom Caucus is offering a responsible solution to the self-imposed crisis. Their list of demands includes a repeal of President Biden's student debt forgiveness program, rescinding unspent COVID-19 funds, and cutting climate change funding. President Biden has blasted the proposal, arguing that there isn't much to negotiate. The Freedom Caucus's plan is highly unlikely to become law and would be a major challenge for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. 
Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The House has unanimously signed off on legislation requiring U.S. intelligence officials to declassify information tied to the origins of the coronavirus. NPR's Claudia Grisales reports. The chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, Ohio Republican Mike Turner, lauded the plan's bipartisan support ahead of the vote. The American public deserves answers to every aspect of COVID-19 pandemic, including how this virus was created and specifically whether it was a natural occurrence or was the result of a lab-related event. The bill requires the Director of National Intelligence to declassify information tied to the origins of COVID-19, a topic of much scientific and political debate. The bill was passed by a unanimous voice vote in the Senate earlier this month. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, Washington. The UK's agreed to spend more than half a billion dollars on a new migrant detention center in France. More from reporter Willem Marks. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announced the almost $600 million funding over a three-year period during a press conference with his French counterpart, President Emmanuel Macron. The funding will support the new infrastructure as well as further French police patrols on beaches where people smugglers help migrants depart for the English coast. More than 45,000 people made that dangerous crossing last year. Reporter Willem Marks. Stocks plunged today at weeks end. The Dow was down 345 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. More now on the failure of California-based Silicon Valley Bank. Customers at the institution showed up at its Massachusetts branches today looking for information about their accounts. The branches are in Newton, Boston, Beverly, Cambridge, and Wellesley. Federal regulators closed the bank today and took control of its assets. The Federal Insurance uh, Deposit Insurance Corporation says customers will have access to insured deposits by Monday. Regular service on the entire MBTA subway system will not resume until track inspections are completed. Trains are back to normal speeds on several sections of the red, blue, and orange lines now. Green Line and Mattapan Line trolleys are still being forced to keep their speeds between 10 and 25 miles an hour. Interim MBTA General Manager Jeff Gonneville says he ordered speed reductions last night after he learned about problems with the T's documentation of recent safety tests. He says the state's Department of Public Utilities requested the information. This is all part of ensuring that the T is safe, safe for our customers, safe for our employees. So we will continue to collaborate with them. Federal safety regulators have criticized the Department of Public Utilities for lax oversight. A WBR investigation earlier this year found the department routinely failed to perform timely reviews of safety incidents on the T. The Public Utilities Department says it's been working to hire enough qualified transportation safety experts. Families living at a temporary shelter in Devons have been notified it will close on Monday. It opened as the state's shelter system was overwhelmed by a surge of families in need of housing. The influx was a result of more migrant arrivals and an increase in families becoming homeless. WBR's Gabriela Emanuel has more. The Devon Center drew immediate backlash when it opened last December. Homeless advocates said the barrack-style setup was unsuitable for families. Kelly Turley heads the Massachusetts Coalition for the Homeless. So I think it will be a positive step when that facility is closed um, and hopefully the state will learn lessons as they're procuring additional new spaces. She'd like each family to get a private room. That's likely to happen as the state transitions to a new facility at a hotel in Concord. In nearly three months, the Devons shelter served more than 900 parents and children. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. 
We set our clocks forward one hour Sunday morning when daylight saving time starts, and Massachusetts drivers should be cautious when we lose that hour of sleep. AAA Northeast says it's the time change that can create uh, the increased risk of drowsy driving. The National Highway Safety Administration says drowsiness can be as distracting as drunk driving. In the forecast, should get a crush of clouds moving in tonight. The off chance of a shower falling to about 35 degrees. Tomorrow, clouds in for the day. Some light snow and rain shouldn't really accumulate to anything, though. Temperature's about 36. And then the sunshine should push back some of the clouds on Sunday. Partly sunny skies. Highs about 43. This is WBUR. It's 507. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Donald Trump may soon face criminal charges in New York. Manhattan prosecutors have invited the former president to appear before a grand jury. That's part of their investigation into Trump's role in a 2016 scheme to pay hush money to adult film actor Stormy Daniels. Now, if Trump is indicted, it would be the first criminal case against a former president in American history. And it comes as Trump is moving forward with another presidential campaign. Joining us to talk about all of this is NPR's Andrea Bernstein. Hey, Andrea. Hey, Elsa. So, okay, when you were invited to appear before a grand jury that carries some possible significance, can you just explain what that is? So in New York, prosecutors are required to give a defendant facing indictment the chance to testify to a grand jury in their defense. This almost always comes towards the end of the process. Defense attorneys and prosecutors tell me it's rare for a defendant, a possible defendant, to accept such an invitation. Mm -hmm. And none of the people I spoke to thought Trump would testify. This kind of offer usually also gives the defense attorneys a chance to make one final appeal to prosecutors to talk them out of a case. But given all that has happened, few expect that to sway the Manhattan DA from moving forward with a possible indictment. And and what do we know about the potential case that they're preparing against Trump? So there's, of course, a lot we don't know because grand jury proceedings are a secret. But we do know that in recent weeks, former Trump aides Kellyanne Conway and Hope Hicks and a number of Trump executives have been seen entering the Manhattan DA's office. And in broad outline, we know the DA is looking at the hush money payments Trump's company made at the end of his 2016 campaign to keep allegations of an extramarital affair out of the news. Trump's fixer at the time, lawyer Michael Cohen, made the payment and then was reimbursed by the Trump Organization for what it falsely called a retainer fee. If Trump was responsible for the false records, that could be a felony in New York if prosecutors can also prove the records were falsified to further another crime, like a violation of campaign finance laws. That could carry jail time. Right. Okay. And Andrea, I mean, many of the facts that you're talking about, many of the facts of this hush money case have been in the public eye for quite some time now. So why is this case moving forward now? The history of the Manhattan DA's investigation into Donald Trump's business has been long and tortuous. It started in 2018 after Michael Cohen pleaded guilty in federal court to, among other things, violating campaign finance law at, he said, Trump's direction. Then the Manhattan DA took up the investigation, and it soon began digging into other possible crimes, particularly a long-running business fraud. 
The DA had to go to the U.S. Supreme Court twice to get the records they needed. And meanwhile, COVID hit, shutting down grand juries, and then a new day, DA came in. And the new DA, Alvin Bragg, backed off a sweeping fraud case against Trump, but continued to prosecute successfully Trump's former CFO and his company for fraud involving untaxed employee benefits. And then after that trial, the DA impaneled a special grand jury to investigate the hush money scheme. Okay, so this has been going on for years. Do you think Trump's lawyers are going to use that to argue that this case is weak? So they're they're already doing that. In an email earlier today, Trump lawyer Joe Tacopina told me, quote, this DA and the former DA have been scouring every aspect of President Trump's personal life and business affairs for years in search of a crime, and it needs to stop. Trump called the investigation a witch hunt. So what should we be expecting to see next at this point? Based on what we know, an indictment could come as early as this month. And if that happened, Trump and his Secret Service team could enter the criminal courts building in Manhattan, which has seen better days for processing. <laughs> Procedure calls for Trump to be handcuffed and taken to a courtroom to plead guilty or not guilty before a judge. That is NPR's Andrea Bernstein. Thank you so much, Andrea. Thank you. We've been covering the chemical spill that happened a little over a month ago in East Palestine, Ohio, where a train carrying hazardous materials derailed and caught fire. Kiara Eisner of NPR's investigations team has been reporting on these kinds of accidents and how they affect small towns like East Palestine, especially the firefighters called to respond to the scene. She's here in the studio now. Hi, Kiara. Hi, Ari. So this spill happened in a town where fewer than 5,000 people live. How common are these kinds of disasters? So these kinds of train accidents, when they do happen, are pretty rare, but our reporting shows that they tend to follow a pattern. They affect towns with fewer people and fewer resources. So in East Palestine, it was a massive burn where 1.1 million pounds of a chemical known to cause cancer, vinyl chloride, were probably emitted, and hundreds of people had to be evacuated from that town. Um, it took more than six hours for a firefighting team that was specially trained in responding to this hazardous chemical situation to get to the scene. The East Palestine Fire Department just has one full-time employee. Hmm. And that is similar to what's been happening in other places. Over the past decade, there have been 18 major train accidents where hazardous chemicals leaked and 200 or more people had to be evacuated. Most of those communities were also made up of towns with fewer than 5,000 people. And like in East Palestine, the closest fire departments there were mostly volunteer fire departments. And, and do the firefighters in these communities generally know if their departments are along train routes that carry these hazardous chemicals? Railroad, railroad companies do have to disclose those routes to the Federal Railroad Railroad Administration, but that agency does not share that information publicly. And I've been speaking to some firefighters who tell me that generally they have no idea what's rushing down the tracks next to them. So when these accidents like the one in East Palestine happen, how prepared are fire departments to handle them? I've been speaking with experts who tell me that they think nationwide fire departments are nowhere near as trained as they should be for this kind of situation. Here's Jamie Burgess, who helps lead the Hazardous Instruction Department of the International Association of Firefighters. I think the big takeaway here is not every fire department is equipped to fully manage a hazardous material scene. You know, the, the fire service as a whole in the United States is woefully undertrained and woefully under-equipped 
to respond to a large-scale hazmat incident like this. I should say, too, it's not just training that's a problem. Equipment for responding to this is extremely expensive. So Norfolk Southern, the train company involved in the East Palestine accident, they ended up reimbursing the fire department in East Palestine for more than $800,000 in equipment, which we found was more than double what that fire department got from the city from local taxes to pay for its entire year's worth of activities. Mm. Um, The company did announce earlier this week that it's opening a center in Ohio to train firefighters for free, but there are some things that can't be easily reimbursed or reversed like the health of those firefighters. Yeah, tell us more about what those health risks could be. So vinyl chloride, that really carcinogenic chemical that was released in such large amounts, it's been linked to liver cancer, blood cancer, brain cancer. And I spoke with a researcher called Dr. Tony Muzu about it. He's at the European Trade Union Institute and studies chemical risks to workers. There is no exposure concentration below which you don't have any risk of cancer. Those workers that were intervening in that accident are certainly at risk of having cancers in a few decades. There are some tests that can evaluate how much of this chemical is in the human body. Um, Those tests have to be done right after exposure. Otherwise, they're not valid. They don't tell you much useful information. Unfortunately, none of the firefighters I spoke with even had heard of this kind of test. I talked to the fire chief of East Liverpool, which was one of the teams that responded afterwards that had that specialized hazmat training. And he said that when I mentioned it to him, that was the first time he had ever heard of it from anyone. Wow. Um, Generally, he feels like health screening of firefighters is not on anyone's top priority list. Okay. NPR's Kiara Eisner of the investigations team. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ari. Okay, everyone has been talking about the movie Cocaine Bear, but have you ever heard of Cocaine Cat? As NPR's Rachel Treisman reports, a real-life version recently played out in Cincinnati. Ray Anderson has gotten some unusual calls throughout his career with Cincinnati Animal Care. The shelter has seen pigs, the occasional goat, and even a domesticated raccoon. But nothing could have prepared him for what happened in January. I got a phone call at about two in the morning that there were reports of a leopard being spotted in the Oakley neighborhood of Cincinnati. I texted our chief and he texted me back and said, yeah, we're leaving the scene now, call me. The cat, whose name is Amory, escaped from his owner's car during a police stop. And he's not actually a leopard. The shelter brought him in for medical care and a DNA test. That confirmed that he's a serval, a type of wild cat native to Africa and illegal to own in Ohio. Our big cat expert said he would rather deal with a tiger than a serval. These are animals that belong in the wild, belong in a zoo, belong in a sanctuary, uh, not in, in an apartment in a city. The team also tested Amory for drugs, the shelter's protocol after a high-profile incident with an intoxicated monkey last year. The cat had cocaine in his system. Authorities are still investigating how that came to be. If we find out about any feeding this cat cocaine on purpose, then we will pursue charges. Amory now lives at the Cincinnati Zoo. His story only went public this week after the paperwork was finished. And by that point, Cocaine Bear had hit theaters. I'm thinking about pitching a sequel about a guy who works at an animal shelter that gets a cat on cocaine weeks after the movie Cocaine Bear came out. But it's also a serious story. 
Anderson hopes it will draw attention to issues like illegal animal ownership and shelter overcrowding. We're in the middle of a nationwide animal shelter capacity crisis. There are going to be 8,000 animals that come through our county shelter this year that won't receive a percent of the publicity and attention that this case is getting. So if you're looking to adopt a pet, Anderson says, consider heading to your local shelter first. Rachel Treisman, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered on WBUR, as the U.S.-China relationship continues to fizzle, high-profile visits from American politicians to Taiwan have become even more complicated. That story is still ahead. Losses across the board for Wall Street stocks. The Dow fell just over 1%, 345 points, the Dow's worst week since June. S&P dropped about 1.5%, and the Nasdaq gave up one and three quarters percent The city of Cambridge is considering what to do about the boom in life science laboratories. The city council voted this week to set up a task force to consider new restrictions on the development of life science space. That could include size limits, new design requirements, and zoning changes. Some officials and residents are concerned that the growing industry could overwhelm Cambridge neighborhoods and stymie efforts to build new housing. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Build entrepreneurial skills and make an impact with a Babson MBA. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu slash MBA. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. 45 degrees now, overcast overnight tonight, should have some strong winds, maybe a little bit of rain, temperatures about 35 degrees. Tomorrow should be kind of messy, a mix of snow and rain, not amounting to too much though, highs about 38 degrees, lots of clouds during the day. And then for Sunday, partly sunny skies, temperatures just about 40 degrees tops. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Sony Pictures Classics presenting Return to Seoul, a film by Davy Shu about a woman who embarks on a journey to South Korea where she was born before being adopted and raised in France, now playing select cities. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com bankingforbusiness and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. It was the summer of 1988 when the world first got a taste of De La Soul. The first time around, you didn't quite understand. I must not speak. The song was called Plug Tunin, built from old funk and Motown samples. The first single from a trio of teenagers from Amityville, Long Island. In March of the following year, they released their debut album, Three Feet High and Rising. In an era when gangster rap was on the rise, it was an irreverent and eccentric sound. On the album cover, their faces were ringed by cartoon daisies. Greetings, girl, and welcome to my world of phrasing right up to bat. It's the daisy age, you're about to walk top stage, so wipe your lottos on the mat. 
Pierre Soul would go on to be one of the most influential hip-hop acts of all time, but that first album and the next five after that have been unavailable to most listeners for years. Legal disputes with their label and difficulties getting the rights to samples within their songs prevented the early albums from being released in digital form until now. Last week, the first six albums from De La Soul were finally released on streaming platforms. The timing was bittersweet. One of the members, David Jalacor, known as True Goy the Dove, died last month. This week, Sheldon Pierce from NPR Music sat down with writers Oliver Wang and Matthew Ritchie to talk about De La Soul's early catalog and to listen to the music with fresh ears. Matthew, I'm curious, diving into these songs, can you talk through sort of like hearing Three Feet High in its entirety? Yeah, so I think the first time I was able to actually hear it, it was like, oh, I'm now getting, you know, a step-by-step look inside like these three rappers' minds. And it sort of just felt like three high school being like, all right, this is my life. This is how it is. But in a way that, you know, wasn't corny, it didn't feel like they were posturing in any way. It sort of just felt like a retelling of their own personalities. As I walked along my journey, I thought, what have I just learned? In a flash, I saw commotion. There was movement in these ferns. It just feels authentically them. It never felt like they were trying to put on a persona. And doing this in your first album sort of is unbeatable in my eyes. Yeah, I think we rap better than you that's inherent to so much of rap history it feels like that's bravado at the heart of literally every mc's mission right like i'm spitting harder than you and they do have that and it does seem like they are rapping in opposition to the gangster rap stuff and a lot of the early stuff but to me what is interesting is that stuff is coming from a place of self of like deeply knowing who you are it's more about performing from a genuine place than it is about existing in opposition to something else yo something's wrong here no not again get the daisies for the hot holes in my lawn I'm curious what you guys say to folks who sort of make light of the debut. There are some goofball moments on this record. Tread water, potholes. To me, that stuff is endearing. I, I love that stuff too. For some, that's a drawback, but I'm curious to hear how you guys feel about it. Wait, are, are there people dissing tread water and potholes? <laughs> did, I, did I miss out on this part of the discourse here? What's what's going on? I, I, I didn't want to single out any songs in particular, but there is this idea that Three Feet High in particular, there's, there's sort of like a goofball energy to it that, that puts some people off. I mean, it is, a, I, I think that's accurate. It is a goofball energy, right? I mean, they were, <laughs> I think, very, you know, consciously trying to figure out, like, what are the limits to how eccentric or eclectic that we can be and throwing a lot of stuff at the wall. I mean, those first two albums in particular, these are long albums in the sense that they're both temporarily long, but there's many, many different tracks and skits and all these things in it. Yeah. And it does feel like there's just a lot of, we're just going to toss a lot of stuff out there just to see what sticks. But I think from a creative point of view, that goofiness is really a reflection of just an attempt at breaking out of whatever confines they think might have existed then to see, let's, let's just push to limits and see what we can come up with. And I love that kind of, I mean, that, that whole creative goofiness is, is exactly why the group was so influential. If you had stripped off all of the humor out of those albums, you would have been left with some very good songs. 
But the group would never have made the same impact if not for that level of creativity and humor and the willingness to be seen as goofy both at the time and I suppose now, you know, with the benefit of, I don't know, 30 years of hindsight. It feels like a good place to talk about the interplay of Dela's two rappers, Pazdanus and Trigoy the Dove. I'm curious what you two find great about the rapping across these records. Everyone loves a good pairing. And I think, yes, they need to have their similarities, but a great foil in terms of their mindset and sort of their approach to their mindset. So with Paz, you get this relatively more abrasive style that is like, I want to announce where I am and where I'm at. Where you get True Goy is like, all right, well, I know where I stand and I know, and I want to put ourselves in that pantheon, but I'm not stressing about it as much. Living in Gary Bay is something, something every day like this is our living. Giving something shit to the crowd is a major, major to the crowd is to hear what we're giving. You get two amazing MCs at the same time delivering in not opposite styles, but they're running sort of parallel to each other towards the same goal. It's interesting that you say that because I feel for a long time, the discourse was that pause, everybody knew one of the best ever, like sort of, if, if you knew, you knew he had the bar. But I think, especially in the wake of losing Dave, we are getting a, a true appreciation for what he brings to a lot of these tracks. Just a, an effortless, sort of lighthearted energy. I think people will really come to appreciate those verses after losing him. It's sad that he won't be able to see that response. Oliver, I'm, I'm curious to get your take on, on these two great MCs. There are some groups in which the contrast between MCs is really stark. And Dela is more to me, maybe because Trugoy and Paz's voices are kind of in a similar timbre. You don't necessarily differentiate between the two quite as easily as you might with other groups. Right. And yet they're offering you these two different kinds of lyrical approaches and thematic approaches, but they're not making it so obvious that here's Paz's turn and then here's Trugoy's turn and we're going back and forth, A and being it. I think this is part of what makes De La so powerful as like a collective unit, as a group, because you're not necessarily always thinking about the differences between the MCs. You're thinking about how, do this, how does this pair come together to deliver me something that I'm going to enjoy listening to. That was writers Oliver Wang and Matthew Ritchie talking with Sheldon Pierce from NPR Music about the early music of the hip-hop group De La Soul. Difficult preaching is posthumous pleasure. Pleasure in preaching starts in the heart. Something that stimulates the music in a measure. Measure in the music, racing three parts. Casually see but don't do like the soul. Cause seeing and doing are actions for monkeys. Doing hip-hop hustle, no rock and roll. Unless your name's Brewster, cause Brewster's a punky. Parents let go cause it's magic in the air. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR this evening. A forecast after a sunny and mild day. Clouds are on the march tonight. Lows about 35. Tomorrow, a mix of light rain and snow early. Clouds linger through the day. Temperatures in the upper 30s. Sunday, partly sunny, about 41.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. People come up to me and thank me for supporting WBUR, something that they believe in. Those are the people we want to reach, people that not only support and believe in what BUR does, but believe in what businesses that support BUR stand for. Explore how you can become a WBUR underwriter at WBUR.org sponsorship. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Financial regulators today seize the assets of Silicon Valley Bank, a major player in the tech and venture capital space, after a run on the bank. It's the largest failure of a financial institution since the global financial crisis more than a decade ago. SVB, the nation's 16th largest bank, failed after depositors rushed to withdraw their money this week as anxiety over the bank's situation spread. The FDIC says it's taken control of insured deposits. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is in Iowa today, the state that leads off the Republicans' presidential nominating contest next year, even though he hasn't said yet if he's running. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters has more. I bring greetings from the free state of Florida. Ron DeSantis shared the stage in Davenport with Iowa's Governor Kim Reynolds. The two did much better in last year's midterms than Republicans as a whole. DeSantis highlighted Florida and Iowa's early COVID policies, including banning mask mandates and opening schools early, bucking advice from the CDC. People's livelihoods were destroyed and their freedoms were curtailed. No, we chose freedom over Fauciism, just like Iowa, and we were right and they were wrong. DeSantis's trip comes as a Des Moines Register poll shows former President Donald Trump's support eroding here. Trump will make his first trip to Iowa since announcing his third presidential run on Monday. For NPR News, I'm Clay Masters in Davenport, Iowa. A bill that would require the Director of National Intelligence to declassify information on the origins of the pandemic is headed to President Biden's desk. It unanimously passed the House and the Senate passed its own version earlier this month. This is the eight government agencies that are investigating the origins of the virus remain divided with none certain of the cause. It's not clear, though, if Biden will sign the measure. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Trolleys on the entire Green and Mattapan lines will continue to run extra slowly until MBTA staff finish double-checking track inspections that took place last month. Interim T General Manager Jeff Gonneville ordered the slowdowns because T documents on those inspections are inconsistent or missing. He says that came to light following an inspection by the state's Department of Public Utilities. We will continue and do continue to work with them. This is all part of ensuring that the tea is safe, safe for our customers, safe for our employees. A round of inspections today allowed the tea to lift many of the so-called slow zones on the red, orange, and blue lines. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says the situation shows the system needs more resources. It's not just one thing at a time. It can't ever be safety or getting people to work on time. We have to find a way to do both. Meanwhile, public transit advocates are reacting to the service disruption. Stacy Thompson is with the Livable Streets Alliance. She says she is encouraged by the T's actions. 
they took that really seriously, right? They said, okay, whoa, we've got a problem. Let's tell the public what's going on. Let's check all of our track. And does that mean a delay and a frustration? Yes. But I actually think that this is a good step. The MBTA will not say when all subway service will return to normal. It's been three years since Massachusetts declared a state of emergency for COVID. And today we learn the number of people working in the state is nearly back to where it was before the pandemic. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reports Massachusetts employers added just under 200,000 jobs in January. Those gains brought the statewide employment to nearly 200 short of the total that was recorded in February 2020. That was the last month before the deep job losses brought on by the pandemic. As we get ready to spring ahead one hour this weekend, Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey is continuing his quest in Congress to keep daylight saving time year-round. He says that that will provide all kinds of benefits. It actually reduces childhood obesity, it increases physical fitness, it boosts economic activity, it reduces crime, criminals don't like to work in daylight, and it reduces energy. Markey's Sunshine Protection Act passed the Senate but died in the House last session. So a reminder, Sunday morning at officially 2 a.m., the clocks will jump ahead an hour. It's 5.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lesley University. Creativity pays. Graphic and game design, illustration, animation, photography, film, VFX, and fine arts. Leslie.edu. After a pretty nice day today, should have a cloudy night tonight. Temperatures about 35 degrees, maybe some light rain showers overnight. Tomorrow, some sloppy weather early, a mix of light rain and snow in the morning. Then in the afternoon, just a lot of clouds, strong winds, temperatures in the upper 30s. Then for Sunday, not a bad day, sunshine and clouds both. Temperatures about 41 degrees. 44 now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new series Beyond Paradise. Detective Humphrey Goodman solves crimes on the English coast in this new spin-off of Death in Paradise. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. As U.S.-China relations continue to crater, Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen will visit New York and Southern California next month, where she plans to meet House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. That is a big change of plans. Originally, McCarthy was reportedly planning his own travels to the island. We're joined now by NPR's Emily Fang, who is in Taipei. Hey, Emily. Hey, Elsa. Hey, so first, can you just briefly explain why a U.S. congressional visit to Taiwan, especially one from the Speaker of the House, would be kind of a big deal? It all goes back to China. China thinks Taiwan is its own territory, so it does not like it when U.S. officials visit the island and treat Taiwan like it's a country. That's why when former Speaker Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan last year, China reacted by putting on days of military exercises around the island. Mm -hmm. And despite these threats, at the time, people in Taiwan actually welcomed these U.S. visits. I spoke to Lev Nachman about this. He's a political science professor at National Jinju University here in Taipei. And interestingly, he points out that public opinion perceptions toward the U.S. were actually down because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And people in Taiwan were watching the U.S. response, seeing the U.S. and money and weapons to Ukraine, but not troops. I think there was some shock that, you know, troops weren't sent or that there wasn't an even stronger outward show of support. 
But after the Nancy Pelosi visit, that completely changed. And then attitudes towards the United States have gone way back up. And now this year, congressional visits are happening all the time to Taiwan. But with U.S.-China relations so bad right now, the idea that a second House Speaker might come to Taiwan has put the island in a really difficult position. Okay, tell us more about that. What do you mean by a difficult position? Well, first of all, Taiwan's going into a presidential election year, just like the U.S. And here on the island, both major political parties were really nervous about a McCarthy visit because it's just a level of unpredictability you don't want to inject into domestic politics during an election year. And then second, Taiwan's defense chief warned this week that Beijing is looking for any excuse, like a high-profile U.S. visit to the island, to step up military aggression towards Taiwan. I spoke to Amanda Xiao, who is a Taiwan analyst here in Taipei with the International Crisis Group, and she talked to me about the costs and benefits of these U.S. visits to Taiwan. She says they're beneficial symbolically because they give Taiwan more diplomatic weight, but the risks they also bring are way more concrete. The issue, though, is right now those visits, they're not actually producing concrete benefits. So there are certainly benefits in the symbolic realm, but they haven't turned into concrete things like an economic agreement or more security assurances. But here's where Taiwan's in a difficult position. It does not want to publicly turn down a U.S. visit and make it look like bullying from China is working. And Taiwan needs all the friends it can make, so it doesn't feel like it can say no to these U.S. visits, uh, even when it gives Beijing an excuse to pile on more military pressure. Well, let me ask you, Emily, is it kind of a concession then for President Tsai to travel to the U.S. to see McCarthy instead of McCarthy flying to Taiwan to see her? First of all, McCarthy has not ruled out that he might make another visit on top of Tsai's visit to the U.S. for him to go to Taiwan in the future. So that's still possible. Tsai's visit to the U.S. also could be a signal to Beijing that Taiwan is willing right now to de-escalate tensions after months of pretty consistent military hostility because Sitting in Taiwan now, there are Chinese planes and ships coming close to Taiwan's waters basically every day now. And that was not happening before House Speaker, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit. In general, this is a pretty smart solution for Taiwan. They've used these U.S. visits in the past to find the middle ground. And right now, both sides, the U.S. and Taiwan, are trying to find some compromise. Uh, but it really depends now on how Beijing is going to respond and also what President Tsai says on her visit when she goes to the U.S., That is NPR's Emily Fang in Taipei. Thank you, Emily. Thanks, Elsa. Mexico's president says his country won't play a major role solving the fentanyl crisis in the U.S., where tens of thousands of people die from the drug every year. President Andres Manuel López Obrador is also outraged by a Republican proposal to have the U.S. military target drug cartels inside Mexico. This comes as the diplomatic and political fight over fentanyl overdose deaths continues to escalate. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann is following the story. And Brian, tell us more about what Lopez Obrador Obrador said and and why now. Well, the last couple of days, Ari, a growing number of Republican lawmakers have been calling for some kind of American military presence, boots on the ground in Mexico to help target drug cartels that make and smuggle fentanyl. So at a press conference yesterday, Mexican President Lopez Obrador laid down a fierce line in the sand. He pointed out that money and guns from the U.S. are empowering these cartels. He said a U.S. military presence in Mexico would represent an attack on Mexican sovereignty. And he then said that fentanyl is a problem for Americans to solve. ¿Por qué no atienden a sus jóvenes? 
Why don't the Americans take care of their children, Lopez Obrador said. Why don't they take care of their big problem, which he then described as social decay. He also disputed whether the fentanyl that is killing Americans is really coming from Mexico. Fact check that for us. Yeah, this was startling, and it shows just how far apart Mexico and the U.S. are on this. It's absolutely certain that Mexican drug cartels are feeding the fentanyl crisis. Drug seizures exploded on the southern border last year, and there's no sign it's letting up. Just before Lopez Obrador made these comments, the U.S. ambassador to Mexico, Ken Salazar, tweeted that the two countries, and I'm quoting here, must coordinate efforts against illicit fentanyl. But Mexican officials have actually been moving the opposite direction, scaling back cooperation on the drug fight. So Republicans in the U.S. are pushing a much tougher stance toward Mexico. What exactly do they want? Well, they want a lot more action. I spoke about this with Florida Senator Rick Scott today, and and he was furious. Clearly, the president of Mexico doesn't care that 70,000 people died of fentanyl overdose in America last year. He's allowed his uh, border to be controlled by the cartels, and he doesn't he doesn't care. So, Brian, tell us about the realities on the ground. If Mexico did join the fight against fentanyl trafficking, even then, could it be stopped? Well, the policy experts I talked to, Ari, and even many law enforcement officials speaking on background are skeptical about that. Remember, this is a huge, porous border. Fentanyl comes in through legal ports of entry hidden among the 70 million or so cars and trucks that transit the border every year. So interdiction is incredibly hard. But with these fentanyl deaths surging, there's pressure in Washington to do something, something big, even if it means disrupting relations with Mexico. Here again is Senator Scott. They're killing our kids. So if that means we do less trade with Mexico, we'll do less trade with Mexico. If that means we need to do buy fewer Mexican goods, I'm all in for that. But most experts also tell me are that the Mexican government lacks the firepower and the will to fight the cartels, and there's a lot of corruption. That was highlighted just last month when the U.S. prosecuted a former top Mexican official who was a drug war partner that the U.S. trusted for years. Turned out he was working for the cartels. So even before President Lopez Obrador made these comments this week, there just wasn't much evidence that Mexico is likely to take on fentanyl traffickers. That's NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann. Thank you for your reporting. Thanks. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. About 20 years ago, a woman in rural Maine left behind a small fortune, $200,000, to the stray cats of her hometown. And that is when all the trouble started. Jeff Guo from our Planet Money podcast tried to track down what happened to all that cat money. Dixfield, Maine is a small town with one gas station, one diner, and lots of cat ladies. I visited one of them on a chilly day in February. Welcome welcome to the Arctic Circle. Come on in. (laughs) Brenda Jarvis has been looking after the town's strays for more than 40 years. She's like the chief cat lady around here. Come on, babies, it's supper time. And Brenda was really close with a woman in town named Barbara Thorpe. Neither of them had children, and they both loved cats. If you don't have children, you have something missing in your life. 
So you need something to fill it in. So Bob had her kitties, you know. Yep. When Barbara passed away in 2002, in her will, she put almost all her money into a charitable trust. This is a special legal arrangement where you set aside some money, and that money has to be spent according to your wishes, even long after you die. It's basically a form of economic immortality. And Barbara wanted her fortune to benefit the cats of Dixfield. But it didn't quite work out that way. For many years, her money just sat there, and the people in charge of her trust, they weren't really spending it. And they knew that what they were doing, in my opinion, was wrong. Which is why, eventually, Brenda and four other cat ladies in town joined forces to sue, to liberate the money on behalf of the cats of Dixfield. We're going to fight it. We're going to fight it. Well, we did fight it for years until it stressed me out so much that I just gave up, that's all. The cat ladies didn't win their lawsuit, but they did get the attention of someone very important. My name is Christina Moylan. I'm an assistant attorney general. Christina works for the attorney general of Maine. And one of the weirder parts of her job is to basically speak for the dead, to ensure that the instructions of people like Barbara Thorpe are carried out. You never thought about like, oh, maybe we'll just like light some candles, like (laughs) get into a mood and just see what the ghost of Barbara, if she appears, what she might say. Well, I'm not sure the taxpayers who fund state government (laughs) and ultimately my salary would be too in favor of that, to be honest. (laughs) Christina says charitable trusts are tricky because we have to follow the instructions of the dead forever, even if the world changes, even if the instructions are kind of vague. So you have to balance what the philanthropists, what the grantors want to do with their money with what's realistic over time. It took a few years, but Christina finally figured out a way to honor Barbara's wishes. In 2019, she found this animal shelter that agreed to manage the money. Maybe this wasn't exactly what Barbara wanted, but the shelter is now taking in stray cats from Dixfield. Are these the Dixfield cats? We only have three in here, so Felicia came from Dixfield. Hey, Felicia. How does it feel to be so blessed, so rich? You're a rich little cat, aren't you? I think that was a yes. Jeff Guo, NPR Muse. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The U.S. Transportation Secretary talks about the future of rail safety in the United States. That's coming up in about 15 minutes. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. A longtime New England patriot is retiring. Today's safety, Devin McCourty, said he's hanging up his cleats after 13 seasons in the NFL, all of them with the Patriots. 
And it had to happen. Red Sox lost for the first time in spring training this afternoon. They were shut out to zip by the Blue Jays. Boston managed just five hits on the day today. And March Madness has arrived, and some local teams have a chance to earn a ticket to the NCAA college basketball tournament. Tomorrow, UMass Lowell's men's team takes on Vermont for the America East Conference title. On Sunday, Boston University's women's team plays Holy Cross in the Patriot League final. The winners move on to the national tournament. It's now 549. I'm Nagin Farsad filling in for Peter Sagal. Last week on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we asked Nobel Peace Prize winner Malala which she would choose, Taylor Swift tickets or Beyonce tickets. I would want both tickets. I have a Nobel Peace Prize and I didn't <laughs> Yeah, incredible answer. We'll hear your demands on this week's news quiz from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Who gets believed? That's the title and central premise of Dina Nyeri's new book. She told me, for her, belief used to mean searching for the truth. But I guess I'm realizing that actually... When we listen to believe or not believe, to assess another person's story, we're actually looking for a familiar performance so much more than the truth. So, you know, what does it mean to believe? I think it means to relate to someone's familiar performance of their truth. In her search for an answer to who is afforded belief, Nayeri charts the stories of vulnerable populations, asylum seekers, traumatized people, criminal suspects. And she does all this through the lens of her own refugee experience. See, Nayeri was born in Iran in 1979. After her mother converted to Christianity, it became unsafe for them to live there. So when Nayeri was eight years old, she, her mother, and her young her brother fled from Iran and began the long process of applying for asylum in the U.S. The biggest preoccupation of my life during that time was with this asylum interview. I knew, I guess even at that young age, that this one person's judgment of us would decide everything, our entire fate going forward. And of course, you know, in Iran, my mother had been this incredibly respected person. She was a doctor. And then, you know, here she was going to be judged by this American bureaucrat. Well, we got through it. We went to America. And for me, that was the promised land. It was, you know, this kind of paradise we'd been promised. But when we arrived in Oklahoma, my mother never really got that credibility and respect back. You know, I was just a child, but I felt very much that I didn't have it either. And I became kind of obsessed, I guess, with this question of how do I become this kind of American woman that gets believed, who's not routinely doubted or questioned, who's not always, like, people don't look at her skeptically when she speaks. That's who I wanted to become. So I went chasing that. I went into the business world, and I went to Harvard Business School, and there, you know, there's another set of codes for how to get people to trust you. And then I I came back around, I suppose, to my roots as a refugee. And last couple of years, I've been writing about them and working with them and just realizing, gosh, credibility and belief are not the same for everyone. I want to ask you about a part of your story that is in your childhood that I I related to, certainly as someone who grew up in the church in the Midwest. You write incredibly movingly about your desire to speak in tongues like many people did in the church your family attended in Oklahoma. And in that part of the book, you also tell the story that I'd love to ask you about. It's when you hear the tape of herself that your mother plays you and how it alters or seems to alter what you believe to be true about her. Can you tell us about that? 
I think it was a little bit of a heartbreak in that moment because I knew this was a disconnect between us because I know my mother believes in it, truly, with all honesty. So I think that's a logical struggle. It's a struggle of love and care for someone when you think, I don't really believe this as you do, but I respect you. I respect faith. I even think perhaps I have a little room in my belief system for expressions of religious ecstasy. I, I want to read more about it, but I'm not there yet, I guess, in really knowing um, what I think of this. I just know it's very, very hard for me, I guess, to believe certain kinds of performances. One thing that strikes me, having read your book, is that in some places you write about believability that is denied in some ways inside of systems and structures. And then in other places of the book, we're talking about believability in interpersonal relationships as a matter of faith. And I wonder, do you see those two as the same kinds of beliefs or or do you see them as completely different? I mean, I I think they're very related. I, I mean, if a story gives us a sense of truth, a sense of believability or that it fits into a narrative that we know. We go with it. We experience it in a very, very different way than we would if it's completely unfamiliar. Um, I think so much of telling a story within these bureaucratic systems is about telling it in a particular cultural way so that it can be familiar to the officer who's listening to you so that it can kind of pull the right triggers, the triggers that they have embedded in them. And so that is very much related to when we're sitting across like someone at a table socially or if someone asks us a favor in everyday life, whether or not we want to give it to them. You know, we surround ourselves by familiar people. So we think we're kind because we often say yes to people who ask us for things, or if someone asks us to believe them. But the fact is that those people are already in our community, so they are familiar to us. And this is one of the fundamental problems of systems where you're relying on one person's judgment of you. And what do you hope that people take away after reading? I I, I guess one of the most painful parts of writing this book um, was the fact that halfway through writing it, I realized that I had made this incredible giant mistake in in disbelieving someone vulnerable. You know, I was gathering up all of my stories and I had all of this research and I was doing all my thinking. And then suddenly my partner's brother, who had struggled with mental health issues all of his life, you know, he just suddenly, he took his own life. And I had not believed him at all. You know, I thought, gosh, he's white, he's privileged, he has college education, he has passports. What is wrong here? I don't have time for this. And 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 when he died, I just it was like everything that I had known got turned upside down. I I what was I doing, you know, examining belief when I had made such a mistake? And so, I mean, I had to rewrite the book. I had to write it in a different way. But you ask, what do I hope people take away? I hope they realize that our instincts, they're not infallible. You know, when we look at someone and are absolutely sure we have it right, we're looking at them with all kinds of, you know, stories and shortcuts and things that we're looking for just embedded in us that we're not aware of. But in the long run, I think we can start the process of thinking, you know, like what kind of people do I tend to believe? What kind of stories do I tend to believe? And like, how can I remake that? How can I expand that? And then maybe that can start to shift, I guess, how we react instinctively to strangers. How did that experience of going through that traumatic loss of Josh, of your partner's brother, of it challenging at your core how you thought about and whom you believe, how has that changed how you approach these topics in the future? How does it change what you believe about yourself? 
Well, it was tremendously humbling. I spent so many years, I guess, saying, well, you know what? Stories are all determined by culture. So I need to go and learn different kinds of stories so that I can inoculate myself against this kind of bias. But I had this whole other kind of bias, which is this notion that a good person is a person who follows these rules and who strives and who does the best with the gifts that they've been given and who doesn't waste their privilege. And, you know, it was very humbling to see that I had done that to someone who was struggling inside a whole different kind of story, one that that I wasn't at all familiar with. So I guess it, it, it taught me, gosh, Dina, you were not only wrong, but maybe even a hypocrite. And that, it, it was really shattering. It was really shattering for a long time. And, and I think um, I would go looking, I guess, more with more questions rather than just kind of looking to confirm what I already know. I hope I'll do that. But you know, I guess we also always have to really know that the, that the next time we have a pitfall, it'll be a completely different kind of pitfall. You can't stop asking the questions, though. Dina Nairi is the author of Who Gets Believed When the Truth Isn't Enough. Dina, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Mattress Firm, whether browsing online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. And from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Join All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro and me on Sunday, March 26th at City Space for a conversation about his new memoir and tales from his broadcast career. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. Should be overcast overnight tonight. Windy, maybe a little bit of rain. Temperatures about 35 degrees. Tomorrow kind of messy. A mix of snow and rain, especially in the morning. Not amounting to much, though. Highs only about 38 tomorrow. Then Sunday, partly sunny, rising to about 40. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage, themusicemporium.com. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. As Norfolk Southern Railroad, the company responsible for the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, appears in front of Congress, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg has this warning. All of the major railroads have a much higher rate of accidents than I think most Americans are aware of. Today is Friday, March 10th. This is All Things Considered. That story coming up on Lisa Mullins. Also, U.S. employers added 311,000 jobs last month, a modest slowdown from the month before, but 50% higher than what was expected. We've been talking about a TikTok ban for years, but in recent days, it seemed like there's a greater chance that some Americans could be blocked from using the app. Coming up, how a ban could have implications far beyond our telephones. Also, the state of the newly ordered slowdowns on the MBTA. 
It's 6.01. News headlines and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The U.S. government's working to blunt the impact of the biggest bank failure since that of Washington Mutual at the height of the global financial crisis over a decade ago. Federal regulators seizing control of Silicon Valley Bank. NPR's David Gurr reports the lender collapsed after suffering a run on deposits. California regulators have shut down Silicon Valley Bank, a lender that catered to venture capital firms and startups. They appointed the FDIC as the receiver. The lender was facing a run on the bank after saying earlier this week it had to sell bonds at a steep loss to meet an increase in deposit withdrawals. That spooked clients, leading more of them to withdraw their deposits. Shares of Silicon Valley Bank had slumped, with investors also selling the shares of other smaller and regional lenders. The FDIC says in a statement, clients with insured deposits will be able to access their money no later than Monday, but what will happen to uninsured deposits is less certain. David Gura, NPR News, New York. European Union negotiators have struck a deal requiring countries to cut energy consumption by almost 12 percent by the end of the decade. Terry Schultz reports some environmental groups said the outcome lacks ambition, though. All night talks between representatives of the 27 EU member states and the European Parliament reached compromise on a plan that mandates cutting energy consumption by end users, such as households and factories, by 11.7% by the year 2030. The European Commission, the EU's executive arm, had proposed making the reduction 13%, arguing the bloc should minimize the use of fossil fuels faster to take money away from the Russian government and its war in Ukraine. The Climate Action Network, a global umbrella organization, welcomes the fact that this is the first time end-user consumption is being targeted for reduction, but says the agreement is nowhere near enough to effectively deal with energy insecurity, fuel costs, and the climate emergency. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz. President Biden has approved a federal emergency declaration for California as yet another storm lashes the state. Long periods of rain are expected, and as Matt Gillum of member station KCRW reports, it's prompting widespread concerns about flooding. From Santa Barbara and Bakersfield in the south, up to places like Fresno and Salinas, flood watches are blanketing much of central California. The storm is loaded with tropical moisture and is packing strong winds and even the potential for thunder and lightning in some areas. The National Weather Service is warning that since this storm is warmer than the previous ones to roll through California, rain at higher elevations could melt some of the dense snowpack and trigger flooding. Officials in Santa Cruz County are warning people in low-lying areas that flooded in January to be prepared for a repeat. For NPR News, I'm Matt Gillum. Employers are still hiring in February, adding another 310,000 jobs that blew past expectations and shows despite all efforts by the Federal Reserve to cool inflation, the economy continues to confound. Stocks plunged on Wall Street at weeks and the Dow dropped 345 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. We have more now on the collapse of the 16th largest financial institution in the country. Silicon Valley Bank has branches in Boston, Beverly, Newton, Cambridge, and Wellesley. Customers showed up at the branches today looking for information about their accounts. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation says customers will have access to insured deposits by Monday. Once again, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren is raising concerns about how Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell is trying to control inflation. As WBOR's Anthony Brooks reports, Warren says the Fed's aggressive strategy of raising interest rates could hurt millions of American workers. 
According to the central bank's own estimate, as many as 2 million Americans could lose their jobs because of the Fed's strategy of raising interest rates to bring down inflation. But speaking today with NPR's Here and Now, Warren said the central bank has a dual mandate to control inflation and also to protect jobs. And the idea that you just throw workers under the bus in order to try to bring down inflation, that's not what the law says. And it's a very worrisome approach. In a testy exchange earlier this week at a Senate hearing, Warren challenged Fed Chairman Jerome Powell on the issue. Powell defended his approach, saying left unchecked, inflation hurts all workers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. For T commuters, if it feels like your MBTA line is moving a little slower today, that's because it is. The T reduced the speed of all subway lines last night. That's after it found some inconsistencies in its staff reports about track inspections and defects. It lifted some restrictions, but not all of them on the speeds today. WBR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports crews are now working to verify all tracks are defect-free. The T's interim general manager, Jeff Gonneville, says inspections have allowed the T to lift the system-wide slowdown order. We now have in place block speed restrictions on red, blue, and orange lines in areas that have not been inspected or where track conditions do not permit normal speeds. Work is continuing on the green and Mattapan lines as well. That means the green and Mattapan lines must operate at speeds of 10 to 25 miles per hour. T-rider Joana Aristizabal says she's noticed the green line running slower and taking the blue line has been total chaos over the last day and a half. The T is asking for riders to be patient. Inspections are expected to last several days. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Governor Maura Healey announced today she will create a director of rural affairs. Whoever lands the new position will advocate for the state's rural communities and oversee their economic development. Dalton Town Manager Tom Hutchinson says that the post can create communities that can help them get more funding. Some of it is the smaller capacity of small towns to work on grant programs and making sure that their towns are getting the same kind of benefits that larger towns get. That's Tom Hutchison. The new role also includes connecting rural communities with state agencies. In the forecast, we should get a thick cover of clouds around tonight, the off chance of a shower falling to about 35. Tomorrow, clouds should spend the day, some light rain and snow, especially for the first part of the day, reaching about the mid-30s. And then for Sunday, partly sunny, highs just about 40. 43 degrees now in Boston at 608. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts, now sharing stories and solutions from the front lines of America's mental health crisis on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. When the head of Norfolk Southern testified before Congress yesterday, his message amounted to, we're sorry for the disaster in East Palestine, Ohio, and we'll fix it. Norfolk Southern runs a safe railroad. And it's my commitment to improve that safety and make our safety culture the best in the industry. That was Alan Shaw, chief executive of the train company responsible for the derailment. Senators on the Environment and Public Works Committee weren't having it. Lawmakers from both parties attacked Shaw for refusing to endorse stricter regulations. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg has been leading the Biden administration's push on those regulations, and he joins us again now. Welcome to All Things Considered. 
Hello, good to be with you. When Norfolk Southern says it will rebuild its safety culture from the ground up and invest more, do you believe that? Well, I appreciate the steps that they have committed to so far. But the biggest thing that I have asked them to do is to change course in resisting regulation. Uh, They and the entire freight railroad lobby have fought tooth and nail year after year on stricter standards. And I think the opportunity and the obligation before us right now, uh, speaking not just for us as a department, but but for the country, including Congress, is to push that uh, that standard much higher uh, when it comes to everything from the adoption of reinforced tank cars that are less likely to spill when there's a derailment or a crash, uh, to the way that railroad workers are treated. Uh, these are all things that uh, we, we know there are things that would be affected. And uh, Norfolk Southern and the other freight railroads have resisted them uh, time and time again. So you know, I'm glad to see more compensation going out to the people of East Palestine. They deserve uh, to be taken care of in every possible way. Uh, those are all welcome developments. But what we need is more than that. What we need is for them to get on board with a higher standard of enforceable safety regulations. And we're going to keep pushing for that. You say Norfolk Southern and the entire freight rail lobby has resisted this. How much is, is this a Norfolk Southern problem versus a U.S. freight rail problem? That is, Norfolk Southern happened to have the most high-profile public disaster. One of their trains just derailed yesterday in Alabama. But could this just as easily have happened to any rail company? Well, we're taking a close look at Norfolk Southern specifically and have launched a supplemental review of their safety practices and safety culture. But the reality is uh, all of the major railroads, what are called the uh, class one freight railroads, uh, have these problems and have a much higher rate of accidents, uh, derailments, crashes, injuries, and other issues than I think most Americans are aware of. And you don't have reason to believe that Norfolk Southern is significantly worse than the others? Well, uh, again, if we find anything additional in our stepped-up review, that will be that will lead to specific actions with regard to Norfolk Southern. Uh, but I would say that across each of the major Class One freight railroads, if you look at violations, if you look at derailments, uh, you're going to see broadly comparable numbers. You said that right now there's a lot of momentum for positive change, but as we know, the country has a short attention span, and the process to implement new rules and regulations is long and winding and often influenced by industry. How do you make sure that this process doesn't get so drawn out that by the time something gets implemented, the rest of the country is no longer paying attention and industry is having the same impact it's had in the past? Well, that's one of the reasons we've been working these kinds of issues before, during, and after their moment in the public spotlight. Uh, On uh, railroad safety, for example, uh, stepped up audits and improved regulations on things like uh, a minimum crew size. Uh, Those are things we were working on uh, when we got here as an administration. These added things are things we're going to push on, and we're going to keep pushing, uh, even uh, if the coverage dies down because it's the right thing to do, the same way that we have been. Is there a way to cut through the red tape? I think there can be. Uh, I mean, look, we are subject to a lot of uh, procedural requirements that slow down the process of things like creating a new regulation. But I would add uh, that this is where Congress can come in and uh, and we can get swift action from Congress that wouldn't force us to go through all of those uh, steps that, that, that can take uh, a year or more on the regulatory front. It's why we've urged Congress to take steps like encoding uh, the uh, requirements on uh, uh, on uh, higher hazmat standards, on uh, the safety of these uh, trains and cars, and the bipartisan legislation that has emerged 
in the Senate speaks to a lot of those priorities. It's not often you see that kind of uh, bipartisan push in today's Washington. That's part of what gives me hope that we can, in fact, get swifter action this time around. When you look at the action in Congress, on the one hand, you see lawmakers from both parties saying Norfolk Southern needs to do better. On the other hand, you see both parties trying to score political points from this situation. What do you think the actual likelihood is of Congress passing the kind of bill you're talking about? Well, I would call this a put-up-or-shut-up moment. Uh, I'm certainly frustrated that uh, some voices, mainly in the uh, Republican Party in Congress, who have been outspoken on uh, the derailment generally, have not appeared willing to support the EPA, which is uh, the the main agency empowered to hold Norfolk Southern accountable, and have been hesitant to support the railroad regulations we're calling for. On the other hand, uh, there are Republicans and Democrats joining on this legislation in the Senate. Uh, and again, I, I think that's uh, that's not a small thing. Uh, to me, if, if that continues along with continued push uh, from our administration, which you can count on, and continued public pressure, uh, I really think that uh, big things are, are possible right now. You've said that you made a mistake by not visiting the site of the crash earlier. Um, the Guardian, a left-leaning newspaper, said your decision to wait three weeks, quote, recalls the incompetence of FEMA during Hurricane Katrina. So what do you think you need to do now to regain trust going forward? Well, let me be very clear. Our department responded to this issue in the first hours uh, after the derailment. Uh, We were there from the beginning. And uh, unlike uh, those other cases that have been cited, uh, nobody has pointed to a deficiency in terms of the uh, readiness of this department, the presence of our staff, and the functional role that we had. Uh, However, I I do think that this was an opportunity uh, to break from precedent a little bit, to break from the norm where you don't normally see transportation secretaries at crash sites, probably out of deference to the NTSB, but we can do both. We can respect the independence uh, of the NTSB, but also break from tradition and have more of an on-the-ground presence because it's an opportunity to signal to communities impacted by these kinds of uh, disasters and and derailments uh, how important they are and that they matter. But uh, again, uh, at every step of the way, uh, our agency has been there doing its job, and our biggest job right now is to make and enforce good transportation policy that saves lives, which is exactly uh, what we're doing and exactly what we're urging Congress to do with us. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, thanks for talking with us. Thanks for having me. The walls are closing in on TikTok. The White House has announced that it supports a bipartisan Senate bill that would give the president the power to ban the Chinese-owned app. But is the super popular video app actually going to be banned? And and how would that even work? Well, to help us understand, we're joined now by NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Elsa. So it seems like TikTok has been dealing with a lot of legal problems in recent months. Can you just bring us up to speed here? Sure. So more than 30 states have acted to restrict TikTok in some way. Many states have banned the app on government-issued devices. Now, these bans honestly have had little effect on the company besides being kind of a hit to TikTok's reputation. Mm -hmm. Now, in Congress, meanwhile, there have been a flurry of bills aimed at TikTok, but the one that seems to be gaining the most momentum is broadly about limiting business with foreign countries considered adversaries like China. Uh, And the bill's sponsors say it would give Biden the power to force TikTok to be sold to an American company or to put TikTok out of business completely. But the federal government banning a whole company seems like a really big deal. Like, has this ever happened before? 
Yes, the federal government has placed entities in China, Russia, and North Korea on blacklists, basically making it impossible to do business with them. But that has never happened also with a huge global social media company like TikTok. Mm -hmm. So from that regard, it's definitely unprecedented. The closest comparison would be of the gay dating app Grindr. At one point, that app was acquired by a Chinese firm, and the federal government looked at it and said, you know what, this kind of looks like a national security threat, so it ought to be sold to an American company, and that's what happened. And now we have the Biden White House trying to make TikTok do the same exact thing. The thing is, though, Bobby, TikTok is, you know, this hugely popular social media app. It's full of people expressing political views, other types of speech. I mean, wouldn't banning a whole platform for speech potentially violate the First Amendment? Many legal scholars think so, and it's something Trump ran up against when he tried to crack down on TikTok. There's a law called the Berman Amendment that court cited when Trump's ban attempts were struck down, and it's this old Cold War era law that says films, music, books, and other information, and now digital media, must be able to flow freely between the U.S. and hostile countries. And legal experts say passing a TikTok ban would likely once again run up against these same legal hurdles, these yeah. free speech issues. Okay, so so let's say there is a ban, and, and we're sure to see some legal challenges to it. But let's talk for a minute about just how such a ban would even work. Like if TikTok is banned tomorrow, say, what will happen to the app that's already on millions of people's phones here in the U.S.? Yeah, it's not going to disappear overnight. There's no way of removing an app from someone's phone, obviously. But if TikTok were banned, it could become illegal to do business with the company. And so that would apply to Apple and Google. You know, you have the Apple Store, you have the Google Play Store. That's where TikTok and all apps send software updates. And if they're not able to do that, over time, TikTok would become slow. It would become buggy. Mm -hmm. Eventually, it'd become unusable. So basically, it would die a slow death. It wouldn't be instant. And how close are we now to that actually happening? you think? So it's bad as it's ever been for TikTok, but there's a few things to consider. First, the CEO of TikTok is testifying before Congress later this month. Secondly, TikTok has spent $1.5 billion mm. to safeguard Americans' data. We have to see if that goes as far as the White House would like. I will note that uh, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo said recently that banning TikTok could mean losing every voter under 35. And it's notable that the Commerce Department is leading okay. the national security discussions with TikTok. That is NPR's Bobby Allen. Thank you, Bobby. And this is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, how to reduce discrimination in the home appraisal business, coming up in about five minutes on WBUR. Losses across the board for Wall Street stocks. The Dow fell just over 1%, 345 points, the Dow's worst week since June. S&P dropped about 1.5%, and the Nasdaq gave up one and three quarters percent. Springfield-based gun maker Smith & Wesson is reporting weaker earnings. The company said its profits fell last quarter by 60 percent compared to the year before. Sales of its guns also dropped 27 percent from the year before. Smith & Wesson says it's also had to increase its borrowing as it prepares to move its headquarters to Tennessee. Marketplace has business news coming up in just about 10 minutes. It's now 6.20. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Economics at Boston College. Flexible, rigorous, relevant. To elevate your impact in a changing world, bc.edu slash msae. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at wbur.org slash cars. 
43 degrees now in the Boston area. Clouds are on the march tonight, lows about 35. And for tomorrow, should be a messy morning. Should have a mix of light snow and rain for the first part of the day tomorrow. Then by the time the afternoon rolls around, just a lot of clouds and strong winds. High temperatures in the upper 30s. Sunday, clouds and sunshine taking turns could rise to about 41. This is WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The U.S. job market is still hot, but not quite as scalding as it was a month ago. Employers added 311,000 jobs in February, according to the latest numbers out from the Labor Department this morning. That's a big number, but well below the half million jobs added the month before. The Federal Reserve is keeping a close eye on the job market as officials weigh how aggressive they need to be fighting inflation. On top of that, the Fed faces another decision about raising interest rates in less than two weeks. NPR's Scott Horsley is covering this. And uh, Scott, job growth slowed somewhat in February, but it's still pretty strong. So where are these new jobs coming from? Most of the new jobs are in the services sector, especially the kind of thing you do face-to-face with other people, whether that's going out to eat or getting on an airplane. Uh, Bars and restaurants added 70,000 jobs last month. Hotels added another 14,000. Vinay Patel owns a dozen hotels. He's starting to see more of his rooms filling up, even in the middle of the week. I think people are slowly getting back in the groove of things. I think the leisure component had already been back, and then now we're slowly seeing this year some of that corporate travel come back as well. And so obviously that requires us to hire more people. Would be housekeeping, front desk, pretty much all across the board. Now, there are some weaker spots in this jobs report. Trucking companies cut more than 8,000 jobs last month. Factories cut about 4,000. That suggests we're not buying as much stuff as we used to. But construction jobs have held up surprisingly well. The economy added 24,000 construction jobs last month, even though rising mortgage rates have really put the brakes on the housing market. Despite the creation of new jobs, the unemployment rate also inched up in February. What should we make of that? Probably not too much. Remember, January's jobless rate was the lowest in more than half a century, just 3.4%. Unemployment did tick up a little bit last month to 3.6%, but that's mostly because there were a lot more people out looking for work. More than 400,000 people joined or rejoined the workforce last month. The share of adults who are in the labor force is now the highest it's been since the start of the pandemic. President Biden thinks that's an encouraging sign that people are feeling good about their job prospects. People who are staying out of the job market, this is particularly good news, are now getting back into the job market. They're coming off the sidelines. They're getting back into the job market. Of course, some people may be joining the workforce not because they're excited about going to work, but because they've got bills to pay and because the cost of rent and groceries keeps going up. Yeah, and the Fed's trying to get those costs under control by raising interest rates. How's that going? Inflation has come down, but not as quickly as the Fed would like. Uh, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell warned this week that the central bank might have to raise interest rates higher and more quickly in order to get prices under control. Among other things, the Fed has been worried that an overheated job market might put more upward pressure on inflation, and those fears were stoked by that very hot jobs report a month ago. As you've noted, today's report was a little bit cooler. Uh, Not only was the headline jobs number lower, but you do have more people coming into the workforce, which could help take some pressure off. And wage growth has slowed to the point where it's not as much of a concern. 
Right now, the betting markets think the Federal Reserve will likely go with a smaller quarter percentage point interest rate hike at its next meeting in just under two weeks, rather than a more aggressive half point uh, rate increase. But there's still one more key piece of information to come before that Fed meeting, and that's the February inflation rate due out next week. NPR's Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome. A black couple in California has settled a discrimination case over their home's value. They were shocked in 2020 when a white appraiser put it at just under a million dollars. Tanisha Tate-Austin recently told a federal panel how they scheduled another appraisal, this time with a white friend posing as the owner. Our friend Jan brought over a family photo. We took down our family photos and replaced artwork so there was no trace of us in our own home. A term often referred to as whitewashing. That second assessment, nearly half a million dollars higher. Now, this is an extreme example, but research finds that homes in Black and Latino areas are more likely to be undervalued. And that is fueling a push to revamp the appraisal process to limit racial bias. NPR's Jennifer Ludden explains. You may think pinning down the square footage of your home is pretty straightforward for the pros. But not really, says John Liss, who started selling homes in high school. I was taking customers from apartment A to apartment B, and then the offer sheet would say they're both 2,000 square feet, and you'd be shaking your head, leaving, and saying there's no way these things are the same size. When it comes to an appraisal, there can be a lot of variation in assessing a home's condition or the value of, say, marble countertops. And if an appraisal comes in low, it can mean a big loss for people who need a bank loan. Liz became obsessed with getting more precise, objective data. Two years ago, he created a company called True Footage that he runs out of his home in Austin. So I'm going to show you kind of two pictures. He shares his Zoom screen to explain software he's developed. The goal is to pick the most appropriate recent sales or comps that show how much nearby homes are worth. Fair housing groups say this is a key element where bias about a certain neighborhood can show up. Lissa's program analyzes the number of homes for sale. How many days on market? Did sellers pick up closing costs? Hey, here's how fast or here's how slow the market's moving at this given moment. And here's what you should do for your time adjustments. That means adjusting older sale prices to match the current market. Liz says it's not perfect. In Black neighborhoods, even if you pick the right comps, home prices are still lower even today because of the legacy of redlining when banks refused loans to families of color. He's experimenting with artificial intelligence to try and counter that. Now, back to that square footage problem and how it is surprisingly difficult to calculate, some companies are also changing how they measure it. So we just slipped the phone in where the camera is. Tim Stoudenmeyer is with Class Valuation, a large appraisal company based in Michigan. He uses his own home to demonstrate 3D scanning. He places an iPhone with laser imaging in a little gadget on top of a tripod. I'm doing the interior. I'm going to select the living room. The gadget spins in a circle while the phone snaps 180 photos. It's the same technology that creates those virtual tours you see on listings. Scott Rose, Class Valuation's Chief Innovation Officer, says it also produces data that is precise, transparent, and consistent. You can send five different people out to the property with very little training at all, and you're going to get the same five results from each of those visits. Did you catch that? Little training needed. So a technician can measure homes. 
that is more efficient. And there's another benefit when the appraiser doesn't have to go out and meet the homeowner. Why not just remove the appraiser completely from that interaction, avoiding for any potential bias that may come through? John Liss also prefers his appraisers not make home visits. Trainees take the photos and blur any that might reveal the homeowner's race. Lenders don't always allow this kind of appraisal, but the mortgage giants Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have been testing them, and many expect approval. All this change may not end discrimination, but the hope is that it's more fair and builds trust in what home appraisers do. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Overcast overnight tonight, windy, maybe a little bit of rain, lows about 35. Got a mixed weekend coming up. Tomorrow should be the damper day. Snow and rain both uh, tomorrow morning, not amounting to too much in the way of accumulation, though. Highs about 38 degrees. Sunday, partly sunny, rising to about 40. It's 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Now's the time for entrepreneurial leaders, and Babson educates them to navigate today's world. Ranked number one for entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, a Babson MBA helps you stand out as a professional who takes action. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu slash MBA.